you got 20 seconds and want the perfect Christmas gift besides the Let's Run.com t-shirts, the runner box is where it's at. Experts send you a box every month, every quarter, whenever you want it, with $50 of hand-picked goods for as little as 29 bucks. Check it out. Excellent stuff. Link in the show notes. Use code Let's Run 22 to save 10 bucks. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. It's the middle of December and it was a huge week of cross country. We had the Eurocross in Italy, the World XC Trials in Kenya, Foot Locker Nationals and US Club Cross out in California. Also, stop me if you've heard this before, but we've got some drama at USATF. The national office has overruled the USATF board by select- selecting Orlando over Chattanooga for the 2024 US Olympic Marathon trials. Plus, we finally have the details for why Randolph Ross was suspended three years for tampering. We will discuss that case as well. Well, then, we've also got an interview in today's show. Tell us a little bit about that. We haven't done it yet, John, but the great Clayton Murphy will be joining us on the podcast. New segment, good news of the week. How about great news of the week? Clayton is a new father. He and his wife, Ariana Washington, the former NCAA 100-meter champ. Their son, Cash, was born 13 weeks early. He's home for Christmas after 65 days in the NICU. So we'll talk to Clayton about being a dad. Hopefully a little running should be good, but... We need, we need some positivity in the holiday season. Best news I've heard in a long time. And oh my God, that kid's jeans. We always talk about Paula Radcliffe and Gary Lowe. It's always been like two distance runners coming together. But if little Cash wants to be a runner, man. Whew. The best news I've heard, well, that Clayton Murphy, as a fellow premature baby, that Cash news is amazing. But the best non-Clayton Murphy related news I've heard is, folks, the Let's Run.com long sleeve shirts are almost here. They were supposed to come yesterday. They're actually going to be on Thursday. And along with those, we're actually getting the, the, all the short sleeves that were out of stock, in stock as well. But these are new and improved. They've got hem tags on them. They look super sweet. If you haven't checked them out, go to shop.letsrun.com now. One of the guys who's pre-ordered sent me a text. Not making this up. Fellow Marylander, Marylander said this. Can't wait to get it and wear it to Christmas dinner. That's right, folks. You'll look super cool, super good at Christmas dinner. If you order now, shop.letsrun.com. Enter the code podcast. You almost get on my cost. $10 off every shirt. Do it now. Now, it wasn't all good news and last week, and I do want to play a little song. No, John, I'm not going to celebrate the death of England's World Cup chances. Those taps are to mark the end of Sam Bankman-Fried's freedom. He has been arrested 
And I actually view that as great news. I'm so excited that Sam Bankman Fried's behind bars. And actually, John, I will mock you a little bit. I've held off for two days. It's all I could do, though. You guys have talked on the podcast in the past about, you know, I was never on a college team, so I couldn't really relate to this. Like the one person you want to beat is your own teammate. And I'm like, no, why do you want to beat your own teammate? Like you guys are on the same team. Like You should root for your teammate. But I'll admit this weekend, when I was watching that World Cup quarterfinal game, I was rooting for France. And part of it was, I just was like, I can't have John's team win. Plus, we made a highly publicized bet on this podcast that the United States, I said the United States would win the World Cup before England does. And I felt like this was the hump year. U.S. wasn't going to do it this year. England might. But after this, it's all uphill for the U.S. So, John, I'd like to say I'm sorry for your loss, but I'm really not. Like Sam Bankman freed. I'm happy he's in prison. And I'm happy England is out of the World Cup. Well, good morning to you as well, Robert. This is, it's ridiculous. You called me the other day and you were like, I was trying to handle this delicately. I sent a text to Weldon saying, we can't send any text to John right after the game's over because he's probably in a very dark place right now, which I was. And instead you've held off to do it on our podcast. So all of our thousands of listeners can listen to me wallow in defeat as well. I'm sure Weldon's going to weigh in because Weldon, I asked him who he's rooting for before the game. He said, I'm supporting France. I like their jerseys better. Just the the lack of sympathy. This is something that every four years, my family gears their entire lives around. My dad was absolutely devastated. They've been letting him down for 56 years, ever since they won their last World Cup in 1966. And you guys either don't want me to be happy or want the team with the prettier jerseys to win the World Cup. So I'm glad you guys got your wishes. Your poor little dad, John. I mean, I guess he, they wanted it. He wanted it. They wanted it when he was six and he kind of thought, nine. Oh, oh, he thought this is what happens, but he's at least seen a World Cup champion. No sympathy. And like how many Super Bowls and shit? Your life has been one of just blessed sports privilege. It, it's, I'm sorry it had to end. I was shocked by Robert's restraint. I just got a text. I don't think I would have been the one to mock you. 4.01 p.m. on Saturday. Do not mock Jonathan. And I guess he just waited 48 hours or 72 hours, whatever we are now. Look, I, plus the main reason, let's be honest, is uh, it wasn't for about me, John. It was for the Let's Run readers. Like They didn't get a Foot Locker recap because you were focused on the game. If, the, if England's out, they probably would have gotten a, a Foot Locker recap. So it's all about the journalism. It's all about the running for me, John. Well, I'm sure people don't tune into the Let's Run.com podcast to hear us discuss the World Cup. I'll accept we we lost to France. It was sad. We've got to wait another four years, but it's coming home. 2026 in the USA, SoFi Stadium, MetLife, wherever the final is, England will be your 2026 World Cup champions. Well, if it's coming home, wouldn't that mean that the U.S. wins since we're hosting the World Cup? What is no, that it's mean? coming home from the U.S. to England. Can't it's it can't stay it's not gonna stay home in the US. Anyway, yeah, write write me back when you make the quarterfinals again. Uh but let's talk about running. We had a bunch of cross country races over the weekend. Like you mentioned, there was footlockers. It was right before the world the World Cup quarterfinal on Saturday. So I yeah, I guess I'll admit I didn't really watch very much of it, but I did follow some of the results there should we lead off with that or are you guys more compelled by Eurocross or the kenyan xc trials or club cross or what about the thing that no one's talking about i don't even think it's on the homepage. i'm the only one that knows about it the richest 
half marathon of the year was held in Saudi Arabia. $50,000 on the line. I mean, I might talk about it if I knew the name of the race or the winning time or the name of the winner. Do you have any of that information that you've neglected to share with us, Robert? Yes, I do. It was the, I call it the Jedi, but I guess that's the wrong word, John. Jedi? The Jedi International Half Marathon, the first. Only 500 finishers, but $50,000 for first, $20,000 for second, $10,000 for third, and so on and so forth. I mean, add this up, 70, 80, 87, 90. I mean, it looks like $100,000 per field at least. And on the women's side, the winner was Irene Kimai. Margitu Kibete of Ethiopia was second. Someone you probably have heard of more prominently was third. Ruth Chepengedich, 67.53 for $10,000. And on the men's side, Eric Sang wins it in 59.50. Trying to think of names you might recognize, John. I'll post all these names here. I see the results. Mukhtar Edris, he's a two-time world champion. He was fourth in 61-27. All right, but do we actually have any takes on this? I mean, it's a race that I didn't even know existed until a week ago. You just had a lot of prize money. I think we've sort of run our course here, unless you actually have any input to add here. Well, it got me thinking. Like, people are talking about, you know, this, you know, Qatar trying to sports wash their human rights abuses or whatever. And I was just like... How does this race exist? How do they put all this money on and then not get the word out? Like, they, don't, they probably have no idea what Let's Run.com is, or you think they'd want publicity. Then I thought, well, they want publicity. John, like, would it be wrong if we accepted money from them and just like, yeah, hey, I'll be the race director for 100 grand? That's a moral choice you've got to make on your own, Robert. Yeah, should running, should we encourage sports washing since there's no money in running? You know, it's like, hey, we'll take it. But hey, running, that is, the whole sports washing thing isn't something that confronts all sports, right? Everyone's fine taking the money for, for money from China, I'll say that much. Wanda's, you know, a big Chinese company, they sponsor a lot of stuff. And maybe a, a company is different than the government, but China's not like the bastion of freedom. I mean, women have more women have way more rights in China than they do in Saudi Arabia, and I assume gay people as well. But I, I, there's a lot of issues with what's going on in China, right? But you don't hear nearly the the outcry of people accepting Chinese money. Well, there was a fair amount of outcry during NBC's coverage of the 2022 Winter Olympics in China. I did remember them talking about the persecution of the Uyghurs. Um, there and remember world championships in track and field were in Qatar in 2019 and we didn't talk about some of the human rights issues that much during that championships we did mention you know homosexuality is illegal there and that I think that came up a couple times but there weren't also thousands of migrant workers dying to build the stadiums the Khalif International Stadium, I'm not sure, but like all these World Cup stadiums, they weren't built for, for track and field. So, but yeah, like th- why did they have the World Championships in Qatar in 2019? It's to improve the image of Qatar on the international stage, to make it 
try to appear a welcoming place. It's not unique to soccer or football or these other sports. They, it happens in a lot of sports. Uh, I, I don't really want to be the one defending Qatar here because I don't know all about that place, but John believes in accuracy. I do want to correct John. Thousands of people have not died building the World Cup stadiums. That's like fake news. Um, th- the reality is I think 37 have died directly building the stadiums, maybe a couple hundred related to building the stadiums. What, this thousands figure is over since the World Cup was rewarded like in two, ten, over 10 years ago. 5,927 5, deaths is what I'm seeing have died in Qatar. That sounds like a lot, but the reality, p- people don't talk about this, is there's 2 million migrant workers in Qatar. And I- I'm sure the death rate is higher than normal, but I just did the math. If you had 2 million uh, American workers age 30, you, you got a 0.17% chance of death in America at age 30. So for males, multiply that by 10. I think it's about 3,400 expected deaths. So it's probably double what it should have been. I'm not saying it's great, but I want to be factual. I'll correct something. Qatari official said November 29th that between 400 and 500 have died. That's a number officially much higher than what they said previously. But speaking of bringing attention to these deaths. Last week, prominent American soccer journalist Grant Wall died. This is something that hit us all. I paid for Grant's Substack, but Robert, you knew him personally. He was your sports editor at Princeton. You guys took classes together, did a road trip once. But even John, you were we were all texting the night we heard the news. We're like, this can't be true. Yeah, he was... America's leading voice on soccer. He was a huge advocate for the sport, but also didn't take any bullshit when wasn't afraid to report on tough, tough topics or offer criticism. I think he's sort of a model for what we like to try to do at letsrun.com. We're passionate fans of track and field. We love promoting the sport, but we also like to, you know, try not to pull any punches. So Grant was one of my journalistic idols and we would always joke, we'd have these text messages that Grant would send out his report right as the final whistle blew. And as soon as these games were over, I get a text from Weldon saying, Grant Wall story out. And we'd all, all kind of smile because he was super dedicated to his craft. But also in the lead up to his death, he said he had been sick. And I think we can relate to that too, covering these major events. They're a grind. Like we go to the Olympics, Weldon, that's 10 days of track and field. You're not sleeping very much. And we come back and we're wiped. You were totally sick when we go back from Rio. The World Cup is three times as long as that. He's pulling these long hours. It's just, it's such a, it can be, it's a very, where it's a privilege to cover, be in these jobs where you get to cover major events and report on them. But it's a difficult lifestyle for that three weeks while he's there. And I don't know what happened to Grant. We're still waiting to exactly hear how the cause of death, but. It's just, it's a tragedy. It's a huge loss for sports journalism. It's very sad. Well, I think we want to tie a little bit of this Grant death into the Qatar abuses. Like, Grant did a great job of not only covering soccer, but also pointing out the injustices. I mean, they're holding in Qatar for a reason. They want to, you know, improve their image. And he would point out the reality of what life was like in Qatar. And I'm glad, John, you view him as, a, as sort of a role model because 
he was great at what he did. He was passionate about the sport, but he also stood up against injustices. And I, I mean, I don't want to say that we're Grant Wall of track and field, but hey, John, you're completely bald like he is, and we do point- not completely, almost right. completely. We do we do point out, you know, like what's wrong with the sport, doping, you know, etc. I think it's a little bit different in in in, in soccer versus running because. The corruption in running, well, I guess there is the USATF corruption and the bureaucratic corruption, but a lot of it is also the doping. Whereas in, in soccer, the corruption is more administrative, just administrative. I mean, I guess there's probably doping, but nobody really cares as much about that. But yeah, Grant was a great dude. We, It was clear to me from very early at Princeton, he wanted to be a professional journalist. Like He would talk to English professors about certain words to use, and he could write so fast. It was amazing. But um my senior year, Princeton beat UCLA in basketball in the first round of the NCAA tournament, and we just all hopped on the bandwagon. We just literally hopped in the car and drove out to Indy. Me, Chris Lear, author of Running the Buffaloes, Grant Wall, and another guy, Kevin Sonic. So much fun. He was so full of life, always just a, full of smiles and a really good dude. Like when I was coaching at Cornell, there was a guy, supporter of club member, Ross McGowan, who, I th- who wrote for the school newspaper I thought was quite talented, and he was thinking about what does he want to do after graduation. I said, hey, I know this guy, Grant. Why don't you send your stuff to him? He read all of his stuff, sent a recommendation to his editors. And, you know, he didn't have to do that. He was just, you know, a, a great dude. I and mean, that's a crazy thing with Grant. Because I'm reading like soccer Twitter. Or there's like 50 stories like that. I mean, he was helping everybody out. I want to, we all want to be more like Grant Wall, I think is my takeaway. And it, but it made us sort of reflect a little bit also like how we cover the sport and that sort of stuff. I mean, he died, he died doing what he loved. Like he was also a huge Argentina fan. He spent time in uh, Argentina during college. And that's where he fell in love with soccer. And John, he said there's only one team he, he really rooted for Boca juniors in Argentina, but I'm sure he had a secret uh, passion for the Argentinian soccer team. And so the game he died at during the game was the Argentina-Holland game. And if you're going to go out doing what you love, that's the way to do it. But John, uh, he died right after right after that kick, that the amazing free kick by Holland. He t- Grant's like, what the hell was that? Essentially, was his last tweet. So totally tragic. Immediately after the death, there was some speculation from his brother that he was murdered. And... As we're recording this podcast, his brother has put out a tweet saying, I no longer suspect foul play. He goes on to say the family will be releasing a statement soon about the cause of death. So that's a good thing. But his brother's initial concern shows the problem with having events in some of these places. If you have to think, was he murdered? There's something wrong with the place you're having the event, right? And Grant was unflinchingly critical of Qatar, not afraid to say it. He'd been detained twice briefly while in Qatar. And he had this other third crazy story where he was recording a podcast and some random stranger just walked in his apartment and stared right at him. Turns out they're bizarre coincidences, but the whole thing's just really sad. His brother's reaction to his death reminds me of David Torrance's mother's reaction to to, to her son's death in the sense of David, the professional runner that died a few years in a swimming pool, was a good swimmer. He had reported some things about John Madden's training group. And she's like, I think he was murdered. And 
you know, we looked into it. We couldn't prove anything. Most likely, I would say that, that he, he drowned, but it's a possibility. It's kind of a scary possibility to think about. Watch. Um, all right, P. Grant, you're missed, buddy. And uh, one last, I mean, I put this up on Twitter, but he and I took a, a, an African-American sport class senior year. This is a cool story. Like you had to write one paper. It was the whole class, visiting professor. And I mean, he wrote like 40 or 60 pages. It was a lot. On the 1974 Howard University soccer team, it was an all-black team that won the NCAA title. And they weren't celebrated that much because there was a lot of Caribbean blacks, foreigners, and they weren't like U.S. blacks. And there's some divide there. And I don't know. The university professor thought it should have he should have done more work and he didn't give Grant like a really good grade. I don't know what, he, I don't know if he got a bad grade, but I know he didn't get a good grade. And Grant's like, this is ridiculous. Like this isn't our thesis. Like I did a lot of work. What does he want? A hundred pages? Like this is absurd. And so Grant had the last laugh though. His, the first feature story that he did at Sports Illustrated was basically that paper repa- repackaged and was published probably, I think a year later, he was already working at Sports Illustrated, maybe 18 months. So. All right, well, there's no easy way to transition out of that topic, but let's talk about some cross-country guys. All right, I want to talk about Foot Lockers, or as it was known officially for last weekend only, the Champs Sports Cross-Country Championships out in San Diego. Kenny, Foot Locker, East Bay, whatever you want to call it. It was on Saturday. Cole Matheson, I believe that's how you pronounce it. That's what they're saying on the broadcast, Matheson. He was the men's winner. 14.56, the fastest time since Drew Hunter in 2015. He hails from the state of Indiana. He will be attending the University of Colorado next year. On the women's side, Carrie Beloga takes it in 16.49 for the 5K course. That's one of the faster times we've ever seen in San Diego. There's only been one faster winning time since 1994. And the top three girls were all 17.01 or faster. She will also be attending Colorado next year. And I feel like we have this discussion every year, but I'm going to say it again. Matheson, he was only fourth at NXN, but now he's the Foot Locker champion. And Beloga did not run NXN, so it's kind of hard to say exactly how she would have stacked up, though I think Irene Riggs probably would have beaten her handily. Should Foot Locker, should this meet still be around? Are you guys glad to see it? Or is it just a case like, we're getting the NXN sort of it's, this happens fairly frequently where maybe the person who was fourth or fifth or sixth at NXN is coming back a week later and winning Foot Locker. So what are your thoughts on Foot Locker in the year 2022? I guess I should be honest. Like ever since NXN came on the scene, I was a big Foot Locker fan and I wanted Foot Locker to, to be there and be big, but it's just slowly, my love of footwalker has slowly gone down, particularly in the last five years. And this was the first year I was like, why do we even have this meet? Which is crazy because we may be publishing a story if we can get the details. Looks like footwalker is going to be saved. The sponsorship was up this year. And the former footwalker champion may have found a new sponsor to take over the meet. But like when you have a team and individuals going to NXN, like, yeah, this is cool for these 40 people or 80, I guess we count men and women that get to go to this meet and it's fun to be just focused on the individuals, but there's no reason for two meets. Like all it does is it's like, I, I say this about the track and field or even a marathon. 
I would rather have one super meet. Let's have one super wheelchair race. I'd rather have I'd rather have Boston have a super great men's race than two mediocre men's and women's races. So I'd rather have one kick-ass nationals that has everything than than what we have now. I just I, I don't see a need for it. That being said, the to- the results are pretty good. I mean, if you look at the totally speed ratings, Cole Matheson ran, ran, got, get, was given a 204.13. Aaron, the fastest in the country was Aaron Solomon's 204.17 at NXN. Now, normally the speed ratings at Foot Locker are a little higher for some reason. So I don't think these guys would have won NXN, guys and gals. No. Well, he didn't. Matheson, he was fourth. He ran NXN. But no, these were two outstanding performances in the boys and girls races. And I get. I can understand why you would want to save this meet. It has so much history. You've got former champions, Chris Zelensky, Adam Goucher. It's a, you know, Dathan Ritzenhain, Ryan Hall ran at this meet, Jenny Simpson ran at this meet. So many top athletes that we've had come through American distance running have run at this meet at some point. Grant Fisher was a two-time champion. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving out tons of names here, but there's so much history attached to it. Most of that has been at this San Diego course. The course hasn't changed that much over the years. I am a little suspicious because these people, these course records have stood basically forever and they're very, very fast. I'm kind of suspicious that the course now is different than it was then. But anyway, the reason you want it is because you get this focus on these individuals. It's just a cool thing to come out to San Diego to run this one final race. The reason to keep it is the history, the heritage, but as you said, Robert, practically, well, yeah, it probably it just makes sense now that NXN has had individuals for over a decade to have just one national championship race like we do in the NCAA. But I can't say, like, I can't fault someone for wanting to save Foot Locker because I do get the appeal of the meet. The history of Foot Locker is amazing. The one point I want to make, I think the thing that's really hurt Foot Locker, East Base, Cross champs? No. Champ sports cross country championships champs is what it was known as this year. Is Newberry Park. Because outside of the people on the teams, nobody cares about team cross country at the high school level, really. It's sort of an afterthought. Um, but, but what it does is when there's good individuals on the top teams, they might go where their team is. So Foot Locker took some of the talent from, I mean, NXN took a lot of the top talent from Foot Lockers. And that's really been magnified the last three years or with Newberry Park because essentially like three of the top five guys on the country were all on the same team. And then you really started paying more attention to like, what can this team do? So for a brief period, people actually did care about what the teams were doing at Foot Lockers. But public at large really doesn't care much, too much about like the team thing. Um, so Foot Locker... East Bay, Bay's, whatever it's going to have a new name next year with new ownership. Uh, let's see it's, what it can do if it can succeed like, and maybe attract some of the top individuals. Because, we, we, John, we don't have a true one. There isn't a true one. A lot of top people still go to Foot Lockers, even if the winner of the last few years would have been at NXN, right? So it's it's not a true... You can't say either one is the true national championship. It's not like the guy at, Foot, at Cross would be... At Champs would be, you know, 81st place at, at But I think when you have something like what we saw this year with Cole Matheson winning or last year when Riley Hove won, those guys did run NXN and they got beat. So I think it is fairly easy to say, well, we did have a true national championship because 
all the guy, the top guys from, or the top finisher from Foot Locker also ran NXN and they got beat at NXN. Look, if, but if you run NXN again, John, I don't think Aaron Solomon wins it. So I agree with Wells. And- but that, all right, that's no, that's that's a different thing entirely. Because, John, I'm just saying there were many top runners who were, who went who ran the San Diego meet and didn't run NXN. You can't say all of the top runners go to one meet or the other. That's the issue. Okay, okay, sure. And yes. the history of San Diego of the sport means something. So if it continues that we kind of have two meets, it's going to be what it's going to be. I mean, we had the running lane championships. There's a reason, you know, these meets can exist. Yeah, the Newberry Park thing was a, good, was a great point, though, Weldon. Like, even last year when there was no NXN, Newberry Park went to running lane instead of going to Foot Locker because all five guys probably wouldn't have qualified. It would have been close. Um, but look, moving forward, I guess there is a solution to it. Like if you're a top individual, well, I guess it would be two nationals, but hey, we more than one meet, you know, it could be like the Diamond League final or something. Like they should just take, and, and if, if the sponsors who I think it is, they're pretty innovative. So you hold NXN and then maybe you have a two week break. And you take all the top individuals. It doesn't matter if you didn't qualify. Anyone who's in the top 10 in XN is automatically qualified for footlockers. I would go back to eight per region qualifying for footlockers like it used to be. Now it's 10. So you get down to 32. And then you fill, the, fill up to 40 with the top people at NXN who didn't run a footlocker qualifier. So then you make sure that you have the top people there. And if you're a top individual, I guess some people might just say, I'm not going to bother. I've already won the Nationals. I don't want to do another race. But why wouldn't you want to go to San Diego right before Christmas and be with all the other, you know, I guess you just had a great trip, but it just, where would you rather run San Diego or, or Portland? I'd much rather be in San Diego in December. I kind of like that idea, Robert. You say NXN is still important. We're still going to crown the team champion, but if everyone agrees, we say Foot Locker is going to be the be all end all. Whoever wins is going to be the, individual national champion the true individual national champion and yeah you invite the top 10 from nxn and yeah give them a week to or two to recover i actually i like that idea and it would require a little rejiggering of the calendar but i think that's probably the best way you're going to do it and then anyone who's not on a team who qualifies for nxn or even if you're an individual who doesn't want to run nxn you can just qualify for footlocker the traditional route yeah where i mean robert's got a great point where would you rather be in December, Portland or San Diego? It's not even a question. And if this, if Footlogger rejiggers his qualifying and goes last and gets these kids to, com- to commit, how do you trump that, actually? This is a way strategically, because, you know, Nike started this thing, right? Because it wanted to control the, and market its shoes to high school kids and be known as the thing in high school running. You know, so... It'd be interesting if Foot Locker just keep. Then they'll start. It'll be like the opposite of the New Hampshire primaries. They'll keep pushing back. Who can be the last meet? You know, Nike will be like, "Oh, we're going back. We're moving back a week." You know, you just have to make sure that the top ten at Foot uh, NXN are consistently running Foot Locker. Because if you get the NXN winner doesn't show up to Foot Locker, then suddenly that meet doesn't really mean that much anymore. So you would kind of you'd be asking a fair amount of these kids for saying hey you got like some east coast kid oh yeah you got to fly out from massachusetts to portland to run this race and then two weeks later you got to go back out to san diego i think most of them 
would think it's still pretty cool. You get to go to the Nike headquarters, and then you get to go to Foot Lockers. But when you add in the regional meets and everything, yeah, it's it's a lot of travel and stuff. But I'd I'd like to see a way to make it work because I do think losing the history of Foot Lockers would be a bummer. But at the same time, I can kind of understand why we want to have this one national championship race. And there is a precedent for this, by the way, back in 2000, the mid 2000s, when NXN first came on the scene as NTN, they only took eight people from the West region and they took the top two, I think, West region athletes from NTN because it was on the day of the Footlocker West regional. So they have worked kind of, well, it's not really working together, but they've made exceptions in the past. Okay. Well, yeah, but I mean, in an ideal world, Nike would have been so selfish. Is what I would say. I mean, I guess they spent a lot of money and helped high school cross country, but they should have just incorporated the two into one meet. Like they could have had the Nike team nationals with the footlocker individual champion, you know, and you'd be, you'd be, you'd be crowned as the footlocker champion and you could submarket it and get some of the money from footlocker, but Hey, they wanted all the glory for themselves. All right, let's turn to European cross country. The spar European cross country championships. I'm not sure what spar means, John. Do you know? It's a, like convenience store, chain of convenience stores in Europe. Cool. So it's like the 7-Eleven European Athletic Cross Country Championships or the Rofo, baby. Rofo. I don't really have Wawa here. We have a little Wawa. But Wait, yeah. there's a Rofo? That's that's a chain of convenience stores in the United States? Baltimore, that's what we call it. Justin Tucker's the spokesman. Royal Farms. Royal Farms, John. Rofo. Never heard of it. I, I did a big road trip this whole summer and I never encountered a Rofo. So maybe I'm not well-traveled enough. Have you been to Bucky's? Yes. Uh, oh, actually, I've stopped in a park. I've st- I don't think I've ever been inside, but I'm familiar with Bucky's, and we've st- I've stopped to get gas there. I've never been there, despite being from Texas originally, which is crazy. Anyways, we, last weekend we, or we we debated whether the Norwegian Federation makes their stars run Eurocross. I don't know if we have the answer, but hey, Norwegians always run it, and they win it. They win both the men and women individuals title. Caroline Grovedal wins the women 26-25, and the great Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Wins the men's title in 29-33. Dominated over the runner-up, John. And I've got to admit, I didn't know who this person was. I'd never heard of this person. It shows how I'm American biased. Emil Karras is how I'm going to say his name. C-A-R-E-S-S of Great Britain, nine seconds back. Had you heard of him, John? He's British. He's actually pretty talented for his age. I... I had not heard of him at the start of the year, but by Eurocross, I certainly had heard of him because, as you mentioned, he's pretty talented. He's 24 years old. He's had a breakout year. This year, he's run big PBs pretty much across the board, the most impressive of which, 27.34 in the 10K, and then he just recently ran 60.32 in the half marathon. So you know, you think about this. If, an, if we had a 24-year-old American running 60.32 in the half, guy who's younger than Connor Mance, we'll be going pretty crazy over him. So yes, Emil Caress, he's had a big year and getting second behind only Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the European Championships, another tremendous result for him. So I certainly have heard of him and he's a name to remember. So he actually turns 25 pretty soon. There was another Brit that many people do know that his name. We kind of made fun of him a little bit. Well, didn't really make fun of him, but he won the under 23 championship last year. Charles Hicks, he won NCAAs this year, and we're like, hey, shouldn't he run against Jakob Ingebrigtsen? Because Jakob Ingebrigtsen is still under 23. 
But he ran the under-23 championships again, and he repeated as champion 23-40 for the 8K case. Charles Hicks is only 21. So, and, and actually, you know, he, he's a 27-40 guy, 13-24. So uh, the other British guy that's 24 is 13-26, 27-34. Hicks is 13-24, 27-40. Um, you know, if you're wondering how Charles Hicks would do, I will have to, well, John, do you think he could have beaten Hager Brenton? No, we had this discussion two weeks ago. It's not. It's a ridiculous statement. No. Okay, good. Just wanted to have you on the record. Do a little math. If Hicks for AK was averaging three hundred five per K, and Ingebrigtsen for ten K was running three hundred three per for ten K, so he ran a faster pace for two extra K. Um, Ingebrigtsen was twenty nine thirty three. Charles Hicks was running twenty nine fifty two pace for his AK win, but. You know, I think if Hicks had run the senior race, he probably would have been, you know, top 10, right? I, I would think the NCAA cross country champion, you got to be pretty damn good to do that. The crazy thing to me is just Jakob Ingebrig said this was his sixth straight victory at Eurocross. He won four straight in the junior race, the under 20, starting in 2016 when he was 16 years old. And then there was, I don't think there was a Eurocross in 2020. It's not listed. I'm assuming it was a COVID casualty. But then he goes straight from the juniors to the seniors. He wins last year at 21 and now this year at 22. So he skipped the U23 entirely, which makes sense when you're the European 5,000 champion on the track at age 2018. Sorry, at age 17 in 2018 i guess should we be going back in time if you're going to criticize charles hicks for running the u23 race this year yaka brings ingebrigtsen when he was the senior european champion in the 5000 meters in 2018 still ran the u20 race at euro cross i don't really mind what these guys can run whatever they're eligible for but yeah charles hicks wouldn't have beaten ingebrigtsen anyway the cool thing about this so you mentioned Robert, no, big day for Norway. Caroline, Caroline Bjorkeli Grovedal wins the women's race after a pitched battle with Konstanz Klosterhalfen of Germany. Came down to the wire at the end. The cool thing about this course, though, was how difficult it was. Eurocross and Worldcross, they don't mind throwing in some, you know, adverse conditions compared to some of the races courses we see here in the U.S., there was a very mud. It was muddy out in Turin. This is just outside of Turin, Italy, where they had the race. One of these uphills, I saw all the pictures. A lot of athletes essentially had to like stop and walk on their course tours to go up this thing because it was so steep and the footing was so horrible. I didn't see how they navigated it during the race, but that was enjoyable to see all the pictures. And then part of this, actually, the course ran through a museum. It was about 50 meters, and there's these old stagecoaches and other things they put down wooden boards and then they put down some fake turf on top of it very narrow section of the course but that to me is awesome it just part of the idea of cross country is the fans aren't going to be able to see every single part of the race and that's okay but you're having people run on interesting features and whether it's these hills or whether it's indoors this is the area where we get to actually put in some innovation and come up with some crazy ideas we had it with the beer tent at Worldcross in 2019, the Viking Zone, running in a museum. Whoever's in charge of U.S. cross country, I would like to see some more ideas. Maybe NCAA cross, it's not feasible, but USA cross, let's get some 
zany, wild ideas out there. Be thinking about what we could do in Tallahassee in 2026 when USA hosts World Cross. I can't believe you guys are missing the big cross-country story of the weekend, though. Cole Hawker, the American miler who made the he made the finals of the Rio, of the Tokyo Olympics. The future until last year. Now he's what, old and over the hill or something? I don't know how it works on that run. Washed up at twenty one. Yeah, washed up at twenty one. He won the USATF National Club Cross Country Championships, ten k race, twenty six twenty eight. Oh my God, he's better than Grant Fisher. An American record? Can we ratify this thing, Weldon? Can we ratify this thing? Um, this is out at Golden Gate Park, San Francisco. The Hanson Brooks team took down both the men's and women's team titles. The women's race, Bethany Haas, twin power, one of the twins for the BAA, beat Natasha Rogers and Andrea Rodenfels, who... She's who won the BU 5K last weekend, right? Annie Rodenfels. Yeah, she's a, a given names Andrea, but she goes by Annie. So that's what she would be more familiar to fans as. Um, but no, the course was altered due to some trees falling down. So, Well, the interesting thing I saw about this race, Weldon, was what Cole Hawker was wearing. Because we had seen some rumblings that Oregon Track Club was going to be coming back. They what we knew is the Oregon Track Club elite essentially ended at the World Championships. Mark Rowland went to the old coach, took a job with Athletics Canada. All the other athletes essentially left. But now we've got a new Oregon Track Club elite with Cole Hawker and essentially a bunch of guys who ran for Oregon recently. Reed Brown, Matt Wisner, Carter Chrisman, Jack Urian, uh, among others. And they were wearing Oregon, pretty cool Oregon Track Club singlets. I don't know if the group has a sponsor yet. The Hawker one, Hawker singlet had a Nike swoosh. I didn't see any other branding on any of the other singlets. But So I don't know if this is going to be a situation like Tin Man Elite, where Adidas will sponsor one or two athletes in the group and maybe give them some gear, but they're not actually sponsoring the entire, you know, every single athlete. Because not all of these guys, you know, have the same accomplishments as Hawker, you know, worthy of a full pro contract. But I'm glad that Oregon Track Club, it's got a pretty storied history under different ages, and I'm pretty cool. I, I'm glad that this thing exists, and it makes sense to have Cole Hawker there, Ben Thomas is the coach now. So this is kind of the soft launch of the of the team. Well, John, the old Oregon Track Club, you left out. Some people would wanted me to say it. Two drug positives this summer, this year. Nigel Amos and Hassan Mead. We've Hassan Mead's given his explanation, right. but Nigel Amos has not. But yes, you, you can note that. I think it's fair. Of course, John's got a discount. You know, only their two most prominent members of the club of all time. Both Hassan players. Mead is not the most prominent all-time member of the Oregon Track Club, Robert. In recent memory, won a, he won a U.S. championship. Who else has done that for the team? Who else was even on the team? I've been wondering. Nick Simmons, years. that guy name that guy that name ring a bell. Repeat after me. I've been wondering for ten years why the Oregon Track Club even existed. Ben Blankenship made an Olympic final in the fifteen hundred meters. 
But look, John says they don't have a sponsor. And then some people may be confused. There's no chance that Adidas is going to sponsor the Oregon track line. It'll be Nike or nobody else. So I'm assuming they're getting something from Nike. Coaches being paid by Nike, etc. By the way, has anyone ever heard, like, we talk about having two meets back to back and what does that mean? Does it dilute it? So there were some people that ran this meet that did run the cross champs a couple weeks ago in Austin, Texas. Hanson's Brooks, they always show up. I think they ran both the same people, right? But some people ran here and didn't run that. Like it would kind of be nice for me just to have one meet, but I don't know. I guess the cross champs is more super elite and this is a larger field with lots of, People, so but foreigners can't run the USATF club championships. So, all, like three quarters of the on team, probably I, I don't know, but like the Aussies on the on team, which won the meet, couldn't run this race. So, I don't think that's true. Why can't a foreigner get a USATF membership? It's not for American citizens, it's from USATF members. I looked it up, it's you can't run. Well, I think, all right, Robert, you do have a point here, but I think the other thing is you could just make, hell, make this a series. Make, have a series of U.S. cross meets, get them gold label status or something. I mean, maybe that might be difficult with World Athletics, like the U.S. club champs, because it's the club champs. But there's a way to figure out making cross champs, the U.S. club champs. Maybe we have another course, race at a historic course like Van Colton Park or something like that. And it's all leading up to the U.S. cross-country championships, which are in Richmond, Virginia, this coming year in January, I think that would be kind of cool. That would be something people could get excited about. Say, you know, we got a little series of elite cross-country races going here. Maybe you don't need to do it every year, but for World Cross years, I think that might be fun and actually get people caring a little bit more about this discipline that we all all love. Another thing I did is I went and looked at IWF rankings in the 10K. Sorry, people hate to tell it to you, but cross-country results do not apply to the 10K. So you're not going to qualify for the 10K by running one cross-country race. You need to run three cross-country races, get a cross-country ranking, and then be one of the top eight people who doesn't get in through running just the 10K. There were some runners at the cross-champs who thought, oh, this is going to help my 10K ranking. It doesn't. They're separate things. All right, thank you for clarifying that well then, because I did have that question. So now I'm curious if those runners who did run the cross champs will fly out to Spain or wherever they're going to have some of these remaining World Athletics tour races to try to get some points. I mean, it would kind of make sense to me rather than running indoor track, unless you're going to actually really go hard for a standard and indoor, why not try to do that? But yeah, I think there was some confusion about that. So appreciate it. I think they should, the IWF, the World Athletics should actually probably let it apply to your 10K. That would encourage people to run cross country. Now I think most of them probably will just say, wait, I think I'll run a race in Spain. Because if you only had to do three options and the USATF championships had a lot of points, you would run that one. But the USATF championships are treated the same as the Belize cross country championship. So there's not a lot of points there. And then you would do world cross. So... Essentially, you you need to get another gold label race to get the most points, which means flying over to Europe. So I think somehow incorporating the cross-country directly into 10K rankings might actually encourage more cross-country. But 
maybe this first year running it through, people will kind of figure out how this works because I think it's kind of complicated now. And who are they going to be the athletes who actually get in through this cross country ranking? It, it, I don't know who they're going to be. You might get some like guy from like some random European country, right? Who wouldn't wouldn't qualify usually. I don't care about any of that nonsense. I said this in the Friday 15 podcast. It reminds me, I didn't start the thread. I said I would. I'm going to start a thread today. Go to the forum. Any U.S. pro, long distance runner that doesn't go to World Cross in February should have their pro card stripped. Like, it was, oh, we got to qualify for the track. Why? There's a cross, there's a world championships this February in Australia. Wouldn't you rather be in Australia in February than running some BS indoor meet or saving yourself for the Stanford time trial? When even if you qualify for the out, unless your name's Grant Fisher, even if you qualify for outdoor outdoor worlds, you've got no shot of a medal. You're not going to do anything. Step it up against the big boys and battle it out against World Cross. And I'm getting so pumped for this already. I'm even excited for 2026 because I know where I'm going to ho- rent out a restaurant and host my party. Can't wait. That's going to be what, what's that place, John? You ate there with me. Remember that oyster place? That's where we're having it. It was good. It was a good time. Um, one thing I wanted to actually speaking of World Cross, we are a little over two months away in Australia, and Kenya just had their trials over the weekend. Uh, it sounded like they wanted to have it well ahead of time to get all the visa issues sorted out, which we know has been an issue sometimes. I don't. We haven't really had any World Athletics events in Australia, so I don't know how strict it is. But if it's anything like the U.S. or the United Kingdom. It was definitely good that they got this out of the way early. I looked at the Kenyan men's team. This is an absolutely stacked team. I'm really excited. I hope they all end up running World Cross. But here's who you've got going. Sebastian Camaro took the win. He's run 27.09 and then 58.02 in the half. And he also won that one-hour world record attempt in the Brussels Diamond League this year, he didn't end up winning. He didn't end up breaking the world record, but he thought he did. But, he, you know, he's top, top talent. Runner-up, Daniel Simu, world championship finalist, 10K Commonwealth Silver, 12.54 PB. Third place, Kibawak Kandier, the world half marathon champion with a 57.32 PB. Fourth, Emmanuel Kiprop, who's run 13.08, 27.24 on the roads. Fifth is the Diamond League 5,000 meter champion, Nicholas Kipkoria. He's run 12.46. And then sixth place, you may have heard of him, Jeffrey Camoror, two-time World Cross champ, three-time World Half Marathon champion. That is your team, Kenyan team for the World Cross champs. Tell me you're not excited by the prospect of all those guys running up World Cross in February. It's absolutely amazing. That, That team is so good. I mean, we say... This this race is sometimes the hardest race in the world, the Kenyan trials. And to see Camor get on that team, I want him on there. I love going to the meet. You often find the next future star. I remember running into him after he won in China wearing a sweet suit. The Kenyans always have sweet suits. Like I don't think Americans run with like, you know, their dress attire. They don't take their dress attire to the world championships. The Kenyans always have a suit in their bag in case they need to meet with a prime minister or a president, etc. I was lucky enough to take Paul Turga to the White House one time. I said, Paul, you're going to need a suit. And he's like, you don't have to have a suit with you. He's like, of course I have a suit with me. So that's unreal. I'm looking at these Kenyan results 
and I just about fell out of my on race results weekly. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe now. You get detailed results. Makes it easy. Just make sure you don't miss anything. And I'm about to fall out of my chair. I love that phrase, by the way. Tenth place finish. World Cross Country Trials. Asbel Kiprop. Is that the same Asbel Kiprop? Is the comeback really on? Oh my god. I mean, it's certainly possible it could be another one. Tenth place? That's actually pretty damn good for serving a four-year ban and you're a 1,500 meter runner? I mean, who knows if he's on EPO again, but maybe people need make sure that man is tested. Now he's 36 seconds by Camor, but that's not bad. Couple guys scratch. He's on the team, baby. One thing I found interesting, though, I got excited by this quote. World Athletics had a recap of the race. They said, two-time World Cross Country champion Jeffrey Camwell, who's returning from a stress fracture, also made it on the team after finishing sixth. And he said, making the team is really great for me after only three months of training. We still have a good length of time to train ahead of the World Cross Country Championships, and I believe I will be in perfect form when the time comes. There are a few things I like in this sport more when I mean, you have a true great gets knocked off the podium, is down and out for a little bit, that amounts to come back. He's on the team. Could he win another one, a hat trick at World Cross Country? I'm not counting him out. I'm I'm certainly going to be excited to see him try. So that that's going to be pumped. Camaroa believes he can do it, guys. Does Camaroa ever lose at cross country or the world half? I mean, what a stud! This is going to be. He so was hard. beaten 2019. He was beaten at World Cross by uh, Joshua Cheptegei. So still got to see if Uganda. You know, are they going to run Cheptegei and Jacob Kiplimo? Who's Ethiopia going to send? But 2019, the field was really, really good. I'm hoping it's the same. I hope Ingebrigtsen runs it. I got a message from an Australian reader today. He's like, is Ingebrigtsen running World Cross? I was like, I don't know, but that sure would be fun if he showed up. One other thing, so a couple other things I wanted to note. The women's race here. Now, you do have a few people on the team who you might know, former World Cross Country champion Irene Cheptai. She won in 2017. She's on the team. But the winner... 19-year-old Grace Loibach, never heard of her. Her performances, her personal best, if you go on World Athletics, her personal best is 919 for 3,000 meters and 1726 for 5,000 meters. She's only 19 years old. Clearly humongous talent. I don't know what she's been up to, but that I had, I'd never heard of her, and now she's the Kenyan champion. She's going to be one of the favorites at World Cross in two months. That's a wild story. Like who, like, is she going to be a new star? I'm looking at the 1726. She ran it this summer. So how is it possible that you can win the Kenyan trials in December? If you're only running 1726 in July, she was 11th place in the race. First place was 1541. Do you think maybe she ran like an extra lap by mistake, John? Like 1541, that's like 75. So... Yeah, if you ran an extra lap, you'd be right around 17. <laughs> I don't know. It was the trials for the World Under-20 Championships. So that was the 5K. She didn't make the team. She was 11th. She wasn't even close. And now she's the senior cross-country champion. So I'm not sure what her story is, but... Imagine she just picked her... If she just picked up running, and I can see some sexing drugs. Dude, there's no drug in the world that takes you from that to that that quickly. Like, if she just picked up running, imagine that improvement. Maybe she was hurt when she was doing the other one. 
kind of crazy. Emily Chabet, isn't that the former? I don't think there wasn't an Emily Chabet in the results here, Robert. Emily Chabet was in sixth place. Well, Kenya has a former World Cross Country champion, two-time World Cross Country champion, Emily Chabet, who was banned for four years a few years ago. I don't know if that's the same one. That's what I'm saying. I assume it is. Read the ball recap, anyways. But anyways, it'll be fine. But real quickly, back to the U.S. thing. From the U.S., Robert, who would you want to see go over there? I don't think they are this year. I mean, the men's side, Grant Fisher, right? Grant Fisher, Joe Klecker. I think McGordy was a pretty great cross country runner in college. I mean, we can have a good team, but I don't think people are committed to doing it. And you're like, why are you going to go run some 10K race? Because that's still mega Connor Mance. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, then why are you going to go run some 10 K race in March? Because you hit an auto standard, you go to world track championships on the track. And that's how the shoe companies, everyone else evaluates you on the season. I think more people are going to opt for that on the U S side, but this Kenyan team stacked. The Ugandans show up. The rest of the world generally shows up at U.S. At world cross country. Oh my God! Please, Jacob, please run it, please, man. Like, because oh my gosh, if he can run it and take down some of these guys this time, I think it sets up one thing for Budapest. The triple, triple. I mean, that would be legendary if he moves up to the ten k and beats like Chep the guy and Cam Warroar and Candier and all these guys. That Brega, that would be fantastic. I'm sorry, I think I mentioned it before. Connor Mance. Didn't Connor Mance say he was going to be running cross-country? That's something he really wants to do. I don't know if he's doing the Houston half or not, but like Mance, Klecker, and Fisher, I'd love to see that. That would be a pretty great top three. Just need to find a four. Okay, John, reach out. Confirm Connor Mance is going to do it. Wait, do you have to have the, do you have to have the time to go, John, or do they go down the descending order list? In the 10K? Yeah. Rankings, I think, world rankings. I think they would go off world rankings. If you don't have enough people with the time, because the standard is twenty-seven ten, so let's be honest, no one's going to hit that except for Fisher. But Weldon wants to know who's going to go. We've got first of all, y'all have only been talking about men. We talked about this in the Friday Fifteen podcast. The women's team could literally be an all-star team that could maybe potentially take on Kenya and Ethiopia. But we have seventeen men this year that ran twenty-eight flat or faster: Shadrick Kiptinger, Connor Mance, Sam Chalinga, Dylan Maggard, Joe Clarker, Lopez. Connor McMillan, Cole Sprout, Pereira, Lelang, Brandt. How about Robert Brandt? What are you doing? He retired. John Dressel, former footlocker champ. Or I don't know if he's a footlocker champ, but he was Grant. No, he wasn't the champ. He, he was Grant Rivals, Grant Fisher's rival in high school. Very good cross country runner back in the day. Robert Brandt has retired and is working in real estate. We should talk the women's team. Yeah, we mentioned this the week that, sorry, the Friday 15, not the week that was. You could have potentially Elise Cranny, Carissa Schweizer, Emily Infeld, Wayne Kaladi, Alicia Monson. That would be a really fun team if all of those athletes decide to do it. Not sure if they will. And by the way, folks, I looked it up. <clears throat> the qualifying window's already started. So any time you ran this year will count. So admittedly, the times are, are pretty quick with that 27-10 for the men, 30-40 for the women. But Grant Fisher's already got it, so he's got no excuse. So, Robert, will you, you'll, be, you'll be showing up to Grant Fisher's house to strip him of his professional card if he doesn't run well across this year? 
if he wins a medal on the track, he's forgiven. But if he doesn't, absolutely. Okay, speaking of USATF, got some more controversy. What else is new this week? Sarah Lodge Butler had a story in Runners World about Orlando getting the trials over Chattanooga. Now we, we all know that's where the trials are going to be for the US Olympic Marathon trials in 2024. But the details here is that just as in 2016, the USATF board unanimously recommended Chattanooga to host the 2024 trials. In 2016, the board had recommended Houston. And just in 2016, when the when the national office, led by Max Siegel, overruled them and went with Los Angeles, this time they've done the same thing. Chattanooga reportedly was disqualified from hosting the trials. The national office overrode the vote and awarded the trials to Orlando. And what's... The frustrating thing here, it's not necessarily that it happened. I don't I didn't get to see either the Chattanooga or Orlando bids. I you know, their representatives wouldn't really talk to me from either of them, but it sounded like they both had fairly strong bids. The really frustrating thing here is just the lack of transparency from once again from USATF. USATF Communications and Max Siegel, they both punted questions from Sarah Lodge Butler to Mike Conley, who is the head of the board the USATF board, he punts the question. He says, well, we're still waiting to hear back from US. I have to hear back from USOPC because they're looking into it. Can someone just take accountability and explain the situation? Like, isn't this USATF, they're a nonprofit that's supposed to be serving the best interests of the sport. If you take a decision like this, come out, explain what happened. And maybe they will in a week. And that's then if so, fine. Like 2016, if Max Siegel... I believe the explanation was Los Angeles was a bigger media market. They wanted to give this sport a chance to thrive and give them more exposure. If that was their explanation, okay, USATF board didn't vote for it, but at least they're giving an explanation. He's taking this interest, this move in what he believes is the best interest of the sport. Right now, we don't actually have an explanation. And I think... It's not too much to ask from the governing body to say something and explain why you would go against a unanimous recommendation from your board. One point of order, John. 2016, I don't think the full board voted on it. It was the USATF long distance committees. But this time it was the full board of USATF, which is an even stronger recommendation. I assume the long distance committee endorsed it as well. The full board does it. The Max come out, say publicly why you did this. If Max is this great leadership of, of track and field cross country and there's an urgent reason for it to be in Orlando versus Chattanooga despite the board saying we want it unanimously in Chattanooga give us that reasoning I don't know I just don't understand like Max Siegel yes he's a CEO he has a bunch of responsibilities right but one of your responsibilities is to explain actions like this when you're overruling the board for some reason, we assume there is a reason, or Chattanooga is disqualified, we assume there is a reason, come out and explain why you're doing this. I don't think that's too much to ask from someone's being paid $3.8 million a year. Wait, 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 wait. I wasn't really even listening to y'all. The whole board recommended the trials go to Chattanooga? Correct. Max, Max Siegel said no, we're putting it in Orlando? Well, the, the national office, yeah, which is headed by Max, so yes. And he won't provide an explanation. This Correct. guy needs this guy needs to be fired and he needs to be fired now. Like 
the idea that he is some savant that has elevated the sport of track and field is an absolute joke. The sport is not any different in this country than it was 20 years ago. As I've said before, we have the Prefontaine Classic. We have a lot of meets in Eugene. We have a little indoor series. This is the same thing it was 20 years ago. What has changed? The revenues have gone up. Have they really gone up that much? Like, I mean, okay, they've gone from what? What was it during Craig Mosbach's era? 15 million. Now it's like 30 million. But how much of that is inflation, dude? And how much of that is the Nike deal? I mean, this guy is a joke. And like, when y'all were talking about that 2633, I know he doesn't write the press releases, but our super well-run organization is putting out press releases about Cole Hawker running a 2633 10K. What a joke. Now at the bottom, they said the course is modified. They didn't say that the course was short. Like you've got to have people that understand the sport working in the sport, not some race car driver who's trying to enrich himself. First of all, I think Max's contract might be up, but I doubt the board, which approved this pay package, is going to fire him. But Robert, you asked about the revenues. I don't know if you're trying to set me up or not. I honestly don't think you were because I put this in the Google Doc like after this podcast has started. But it's a great newsletter on the Olympics movement in general called The Sports Examiner by Rich Perelman. Put a link in the show notes. It's a must read. Comes out every day. Or at least five days a week. He says, in fact, USATF has been financially stuck in neutral since Nike became its massive sponsorship upgrade in 2014. And he points out USATF revenue was around 19 million, except for the Olympic year in 2012 when it was 23 million. And then once the Nike deal was was signed, it jumped to 35 million in 2014. And that had even an extra bonus. Then you were at 32 million in non-Olympic year. A little more than next year in Olympic year, 37 million, then 35 million, 34 million, 34 million, a little jump in the Olympic year to 37 million, and 34 million last year. So revenues last year were less than in 2014 on an absolute v- value, but even 2015, slightly more, like 2 million more. But when you adjust for inflation, these numbers are way less than what they were. So actually, Max is like, I've grown revenue so much and so much. I have all these sponsorship deals. It looks like from the outside that really this is just a Nike deal. He brought in a much higher Nike contract and just is booking that. And it also it looks like the Nike deal doesn't have inflation built in, right? Sponsorship revenue last year, separate apart from total revenue, was $20 million. In 2015... You know, which is an Olympic year, it was $22 million. So sponsorship revenue the last three years was less than the four years previously on an absolute basis every single year. So actually sponsorship is down at USATF. Oh my God, we got to look at this even more. So great reporting by Rich Perelman. This needs to be an editorial that's written how he should be fired. This is just ridiculous. All right, some other news that we got just before the podcast. Wait, one more thing about this USATF stuff. Like, how hard would it be? I guess it's hard for us to get, you know, it's not like everyone that comes to Let's One just wants to give us our money and sign up for the supporters club. By the way, if you do want to do it, go to letsone.com slash subscribe. Give the gift of letsone.com to your favorite running fan. But you think that you could get, like, how many people run? Couldn't you get 2 million people to give 20 bucks a year? to be a USATF member and then tie that in, you get like a 10% Nike discount on your shoe deal. 
well, 2 million times 20 would be 40 million in, in, in revenue from members. Like they, they hardly have any membership revenue. Yeah, USA Swimming actually has more revenue than USA Track and Field. Now, I'm not sure if that a lot of that's member revenue, which maybe a lot of that goes to member services or something. So it's not like going to pro athletes, which I am most concerned about. But I was sort of shocked to see that. And the USATF Swimming CEO, I think, makes around a million dollars a year. I mean, two million people is a lot to join USATF as a member. I think that's a little ambitious. But anyway. Isn't Max Siegel all about ambition? And he's got all these other job offers, apparently, that he could take. I would say, Max, you've had a great run. If you want to spin this story, you increased the revenue substantially, even though they're now down what they were six or seven years ago, the sponsorship revenue. And go take those jobs. We'll find someone else to run this thing and pay them a lot less. Bingo. If it was some amazing deal, he got handsomely paid for the Nike deal. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. All right, another piece of news we got just before the podcast started recording. The Randolph Ross story. The situa- We've got more details on this. He was banned on the eve of the World Championships. Tell for- people who Randolph Ross is, John. Most people don't know who he is. All right, if you're listening to this podcast and you're two hours in and you don't know who Randolph Ross is, he is a two-time NCAA champion in the 400 meters from North Carolina A&T, 2021 U.S. Olympian. I think most of our listeners do know who Randolph Ross is, but yes, if you don't, that's who he is. And back in July, on the eve of the World Championships, he was suspended for whereabouts failures and for tampering. That's all we knew for months. He didn't say anything. Track and Field News has an interview with him today. Apparently, he was instructed by USATF. Someone at USATF told him not to say anything publicly or he would risk increasing his ban to six years. So kind of curious what exactly was going on there. Maybe they just thought he he didn't want to say something that was wrong publicly. But I feel like if you're telling the truth, you're not going to incriminate yourself anymore. But anyway, he has explained, we've got the details, and he missed three tests from April to June of 2022 that was the whereabouts failure then the third test he tried to send as justification for why he missed it he tried to edit uh, an email that he received from the whereabouts system and change one of the dates to make it as if he actually had changed his whereabouts correctly the aiu looked into it they discovered that it was a fake and that's really what they got him for here because tampering carries a charge of four years. Since, sorry, a suspension of four years. Whereabouts only carries a sp- suspension of two years. So he was handed a four-year ban, but because he admitted his guilt in this case, it was t- taken down to three. Even still, he's going to serve a three-year ban now. If he had just admitted his whereabouts failures from the beginning, it would have been two years and likely they would have knocked off six months like they did for Christian Coleman. It could have been down to 18 months. So that's the situation. You guys have read through this case. Do you have any takeaways on it? Yes. I, first of all, I, did you fail to mention that his father, who is also his coach, Dwayne Ross, was part of the Balco scandal. So that doesn't mean he was on drugs, but it makes it much more likely that this combined with I mean, it just makes it much more likely that he was on drugs himself. I mean, I, that's the only way I can see this. 
It doesn't mean it, he, they were on drugs. It doesn't mean that the whole NCA&T success was on drugs, but it, it raises the odds significantly. But my take, no. Look, let's take it from my brother. Not Weldon, but Michael Johnson, the great sprinter from Dallas, Texas. He's not really my brother, but I wish I was related to an Olympic champion. How many Olympic champions did he win, John, title? Three individually. I'm not sure about the relays. Well, he just tweeted out a little over an hour ago. So much potential, three years out of the sport, for either stupidity or worse, cheating and trying to cover it up. So don't have a lot of sympathy on this one. We'll see you in three years, buddy. Yeah, he's going to miss the 2024 Olympics in Paris. And I think Michael Johnson hit the nail on the head. Now, reading some his explanation to Track and Field News, he gave a lengthy interview. Essentially said the first one, he's at a meet in Florida, forgot to update his whereabouts. That was his explanation. He just forgot. His second one, again, he was at NCAAs. And he says, I forgot to update it from you know Greensboro to Eugene. He says he was tested at the NCAA championships, but because his location was listed as Greensboro, they showed up to test him there out of competition. And that counts as a missed test. And his third one, he claims he had updated it properly for USADA because he was moving from Greensboro to Knoxville, where his dad's going to be the coach, or his dad is the coach, and where Randolph was going to run this year. And he says that USADA tested him in Knoxville, but the the next day, the AIU showed up to Greensboro because his up, whereabouts thing had not been updated to reflect that day that he was now in a new location. Now, I, I think you just... But you got to say, Robert, this is on him. Okay, maybe that's a little tricky situation for him to navigate. But first of all, he got himself in this situation for missing two tests in the first place. The third one, you have to be... on. You need to know everything... everything has to be on point that has to be your number one priority when you wake up every morning is is my whole whereabouts system is everything input correctly because if one more strike you are out and he seemed like it was there's some confusion about this i haven't worked the system i don't know how complicated it is to work the system but most athletes don't seem to have any problem with it the u.s has had a few high profile athletes who have had a problem with it in recent years and I don't know. It's, it's if he's clean, this is upsetting. But like Michael Johnson said, I think, I think he nailed it in this situation. You got to be more ca- careful about this stuff. If you're clean, and if you're not clean, well, then that you can understand why he's banned. Look, and he's a young guy. I mean, some of my runners at Cornell when they were twenty twenty one probably might need some help on some of this stuff. But his dad's the head of the damn track program. His dad's involved in a doping scandal. His dad's now the head of a multi-million dollar program in Tennessee. Someone should be in charge of this and say, Hey, you've got two, buddy. This guy's not like he's some naive guy. This guy's made the Olympics, but also it does make me wonder how much money are, we don't have a lot of money for drug testing. Why in the hell are they sending a drug tester to his home in North Carolina? When they, when his name came up, I don't know how they pick names, but shouldn't they have said, okay, we've got to test Randolph Ross. Oh, we're going to do it next week in Tennessee, but he's going to be at NCAAs. Like, shouldn't they have? Already, I'm, I'm shocked they even sent someone there. You think they would be saving the money, Robert? What do you mean saving the money? The possibility could be that they. I was wondering if they purposely said, "Oh my God, they look at the list and they're like, oh, this is wrong. He's in 
he's at NCAA, so we're going to try to get him a missed test. I mean, that's if you want to go somewhere. Well, then that's but, wrong. No, no, I don't no. like that. I don't like that if they did that. But also, I could see that it's just a big group. He's randomly called. They're like, hey, go to his house to take him, test him. They don't like look up. Is it their responsibility to try to figure out where every answer athlete is? It would be obvious to me if I was a drug tester and I got Randolph Ross and the NCAAs were starting. Like, oh, wait, he's not going to be there. And they'd be like, hey, dude. Uh, like, do they not call him and say, hey, can I be tested in NCAAs? But this is on him. I'm not sure. Also, there should be like one system you update. You should not have to update separately USADA and the AIU. If this is really true that he updated the system and USADA came and tested him and the AIU couldn't figure it out, I don't like that either. But at the end of the day, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. I'm sorry. You get three chances to F this up. You F it up three times. I don't like that he changed the document, forged the document, changed the date in the document. Like This isn't some completely innocent thing. But... There needs to be one system where you update your systems. They need to make stuff easier for the athletes. They should not be trying to like, oh, we know you're not where you are. We're going to show up just so you get a missed test. They should call them and say, okay, we're going to test you today. You know, is this a mistake? Can we test you in North Carolina? Like, um, but at the end of the day, very little sympathy. There's some bizarre quotes in this article. No, 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 no. They should not be calling you the day of the test. Because that gives you time to do stuff to it. But they should not. Now, if they purposely went after him, knowing that he hadn't updated it, I'm opposed to that. Free him then. Yeah, no, I I don't like that when you know he's in Eugene and you say, oh, we're going to show up in Greensboro. He's definitely wrong. We can get a missed test on him there. That's not the whole point is to catch people when they might be doping. And if he's making himself available, the test is in Eugene that weekend, and you're specifically saying, oh, we're just going to try to get a missed test on him because we can. I don't think that's what happened, but obviously that shouldn't be allowed. And yeah, I'm with Robert. The calling thing, you shouldn't be calling him up and saying like, oh yeah, you're in this thing country. You're here today. You said you were going to be there, right? No, the calling should be used in a situation like we saw with Christian Coleman, where he they would always call him if he wasn't at home, and I look, Colvin should have been at home during his window, but that is a case where they're saying they're at his house, they've knocked on the door, they've rang the doorbell or whatever, and then they at that point, I don't mind them calling him up and saying, Hey, we're at your house, we want to test you, where are you? In that situation, I'm okay them trying to call him as a last resort. And then if he's actually in the vicinity and he shows up and he tests him, okay. If they call him up and he says, oh, I'm actually three states over. I forgot to update it, but you can test me here. No, that's when you get a missed test. But I'm not, say, you know, I'm not saying never call athletes, but it really should only be a last resort if you can't locate them like at the house. They said, they, according to this, they didn't even ring the doorbell. Apparently, they just knocked on the door and waited and then went away. So if that's true, again, I think you should be ringing the doorbell or trying to call them if they don't show up to the house. You, the idea should be to complete the test. But if they ring the doorbell and you're in Eugene, yeah, I think that's a missed test because you weren't where you said you were going to be. Do we really think that you, the protocol is not to ring the doorbell? I'm not sure I'm buying all of this stuff. Yeah, that's, that is, they should bang on the door, ring the doorbell, call you, we're at your house, where are you? Go to every attempt for the one hour to get you there. Look, the dad, the guy's dad was a PED user and here he missed three tests and he's not fighting it. He pled guilty. So I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think he's saying they did something wrong here. 
because he's not, not like he fought it here. Well, he would. He didn't fight it because he'd lose. His options were: you can get a three-year ban if you admit fault, or if you fight it, we we know you altered the document. You're going to get a fault. You're going to be you're going to waste everyone's time with this court case. You're going to be found guilty, and then you're going to get a four-year ban at the end of it. So he made the logical decision once he made the after altering this document. Initially, he did try to cover it up though with the, altering the document, and that cost him the Olympics. He, he would have been back in time for next year's Olympics. Now he may miss Worlds the year after the Olympics because he comes back in June, I think end of June 2020. June 30th is when his ban, that's the final day of his ban. He would probably have time to get a qualifier for USA's because the Worlds that year aren't, aren't until September. It's in Tokyo. And the two-year suspension, if he'd just gotten the base whereabouts suspension, he would have missed the 2024 Olympic trials most likely anyway but if he had gotten a reduction to say 18 months because they view it was his first sanction they're a little lenient then maybe he would have been able to run the olympics but he claimed he didn't have a great experience in tokyo anyway so according to track and field news the interview with track and field news he didn't seem that bothered that he was going to miss the olympics in 2024 please read that quote for me yeah he said really talking about the previous olympics being there and seeing how it operated, I'm not sure it was just COVID or anything, but the experience, like politically in Tokyo, wasn't the best. So I don't really miss the environment. If you're not going to miss the Olympics, like why are you doing this sport? The part here that I do like what he said is it's most definitely a learning experience. It's not the best one, but it shows that track can't be the only thing in my life. And that's true for everyone. That's my interjection. He carries on. I need to go ahead and start working for whatever I have afterwards because track isn't going to be there to last forever. So I think he's getting a real estate license. Like, so it sounds like who knows, you know, maybe 10 years from now, this will be like the best thing that happened to him because he thought about life from track and field after track and field. But right now it sort of sucks. Lost a scholarship at Tennessee. Scholarship. Think about how much money this guy lost. He was going to get major, massive NIL money to go follow his dad. I bet he was going to get a couple hundred thousand dollars this year. Probably get a multi-year deal. I mean, he didn't enjoy the Olympics because, yeah, I mean, NCAAs that year, when he ran 43-85, he looked like the Olympic favorite. Then he runs 45-67 in the heats of Tokyo. Like This guy was not that far away from being the Olympic 400-meter champion. So maybe he doesn't, if he doesn't really like track, do something else. But if you were doping to get that, do something else too. Yeah, he certainly would have had a lucrative professional career if he had time pro. He was the world leader in 2021, 43.85, the time he ran at the NCAA championships to get the win. That was the same time that Stephen Gardner ran in the Olympic final to win the gold, and it was the fastest time of the year. And he won NCAAs again last year. Didn't get to see him run at Worlds because the suspension took effect, but yeah, he would have gotten a pretty nice contract. I'm sure to run professionally. And now who knows if he'll ever get a pro deal or what his life's going to look like three years from now. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap the first part of the podcast. We still have the Clayton Murphy interview on tap. So make sure you stick around for that. But otherwise we'll be back on Friday for the Friday 15 for supporters club members. Well then. John, you missed the big news. Just because you didn't get an invite to the wedding, Josette Norris, Ravi 
Andrew is now officially married and off the market. Sorry, ladies. Sorry, men. Oh, sorry, John. I guess, you know, you're a single guy. Black tie. Any Let's Runners there want to give us the inside scoop? Call one eight four four Let's Run. We need some voicemails, people. Give us a call. All right. Congratulations to Robbie. Congratulations to Josette. Here he is, Clay Murphy. All right, everybody. We're trying a new segment here. Good news of the week. This might be the best news of the year. We're joined by Clayton Murphy. Most of you guys, he needs no introduction. Clayton was the 2016 Olympic bronze medalist at 800 meters. Since then, every year up until this year, he ran 143 or faster. A five-time USA champion, two-time Olympic trials champion. One of the most consistent guys on the circuit. But now, Clayton, he's the dad. I think that's what he's most proud of right now. His little son, Cash. You guys missed the story. It's amazing. Clayton posted on Instagram, Cash, noun, meaning brave, mighty, courageous, incredible, perfect, a miracle. And it's totally true. Clayton's wife, Ariana, she had Cash 27 weeks into her pregnancy. You can do math. That's 12 or 13 weeks early. And... Cash is doing amazingly well now. After 65 days in the ICU, he went home this past week. Clayton posted on Instagram, this doesn't make you tear up, something wrong with you. Cash is the most incredible human. We can't believe he's ours. He's defied all the odds, never acted like a 27-weeker, and proved to everyone that he would grow up to be just fine. We could go on and on. We'll continue to share our NICU journey and keeping sharing cash and his milestones for years to come. We thank God every single day for our Bubba. It's like he was supposed to arrive on October 2nd all along. Clayton, congratulations to you, Ariana, and Cash. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. I almost teared up, but you were reading that, and I was just hearing it, and I'm probably writing it. I'm some stranger on the internet, and the first time I read it, I was like, oh, my God. And then even today, like, preparing this, I was like, oh, my God. It's just so touching. I mean, my I'm a dad now. My wife's pregnant again. But I think anyone can relate to just, just it's a great story. And also the love. Kids teach us love. Like, until you have a kid, I think you don't know how much you can love somebody. And I hope you're enjoying it. Are, are you getting a little sleep now? Getting a little sleep. We're trading off. We're trying to trade off without counting each other's sleep hours. But there's for sure that, like, you're tracking what the other person's sleeping in the back of your head and using that in the back pocket. I'm sure all newborn parents have went through that first couple week phase. Uh, there's for sure better nights than others. There's for sure longer days than others. But uh, honestly, I mean, 65 days in the NICU, we never missed a day going back and forth. We were about 30, 20, 30 minutes from the NICU. We never missed a day. Um, we were there every day. Um, and so to not have to drive 30 minutes to hold him and feed him and hang out with him, I'd would trade no sleep all day for that. Well, I think Cash is definitely a sprinter like his mom came out, you know, wanted to get out there so early. But let me talk to you before this. It sounds like, first of all, he's doing great, right? Like, Yeah, he's, I mean, he's since, I mean, we, 
that not a 27 weeker is something that the doctors used since day one. And they were like, when they do rounds, they say like, don't talk too loud. We don't want him to know how old he is. Like we wanted him to think he's older than what he is. And he's smiling. He's literally engaging with you already. He, he cries for bottles. He takes bottles. He, I mean, he is like, you wouldn't think that he was born in 27 weeks. You would just think he's a super tiny newborn at this point. That's great. You were saying, I was asking a little bit about the pregnancy. Like, did you guys know he was coming early or anything? And I guess you can, you can tell that story a little bit if you want, but the answer is no. Yeah, we hadn't, I mean, we had no idea. Um, so whatever the math is on that, whenever she was pregnant, started pregnancy, which was towards like the in the beginning of outdoor season, um, through the day he was born was for lack of better terms, hell for her. I mean, she was 24 seven morning sickness, 24 seven sickness. I mean, like we, we talked about at, at USA, she pretty much would be bedridden. She'd drag herself out of the bed to watch me race at the meet. And then she would drag herself back to the, to the Airbnb and sit with the trash can next to the bed. Um, and so there was a lot of stress put on her. I mean, she lost almost 30 pounds. I mean, there's a lot of two or three ER visits. I mean, it was wreck. I mean, it was, it was horrible for her to deal with and it was tough. A lot of times, I mean, when I was in Europe, I mean, all I worried about was obviously her health being there and um, thinking about that. And we went in on October 1st thinking that she just was having some contractions, small contractions or false contractions or cramps and ended up being dilated. And we went in about three, four o'clock in the afternoon thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll be out here by tomorrow. Then it became, well, he'll come at least in a couple of weeks. And then it became, he came at midnight that night. So what we thought was kind of a normal Saturday with some normal contractions became the day he was born so it kind of flipped upside down pretty quickly i can't imagine i don't i don't think a lot of us can because first kid you have no clue what's going on but no clue three months beforehand like yeah you guys didn't have like the kids room planned out or a, a crib or anything like that right i think the i think the only thing we had was we bought a blanket off etsy that had his name on it and that was like one of the only things we had oh we had a stroller because it was on sale at Nordstrom on the semi-annual sale. That's like the only reason we had it. We were like waiting. Like we, the rocking chair that every parent has, like that showed up like three or four days after he was home. Like we just didn't. Yeah, it was uh, for sure. Um, surprise for sure. Yeah. For the, his actual due date, I think you said it was December 29th, which is two weeks from today. So yeah. After 65 days in the hospital, he, he still shouldn't even be here yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's for sure weird. Cause we even, we just, we were just sitting in his nursery, hanging out with him. When I got back from, from doing stuff today, we looked at it and we're like, can you believe he's like here? Like, we're like, he's still not supposed to be here. So I think until we pass that due date, we'll still wake up every day and be like, I can't believe he's like here and not like hanging out inside of you still. <laughs> yeah. I mean, kids are true miracles, but cash even more so how was that first drive home from the hospital that was it like a i was just so nervous driving with a kid in the back i don't know why you drive like this like 10 on two and i had like white knuckles i was like like the light i had to make sure the light was completely green i like checked both ways oh i still we've only left the house once with him to go to one pediatric appointment just because of everything going on with rsv and everything we've been very careful about like him everything comes to the house pretty much treatment wise for him um and the one time even I went there, it's literally like three miles down the road. And I think I drove the slowest I've ever drove three miles in my life. Like 
I just every single bump, I'm like, hey, there's a bump coming up. Make sure he's okay. And I'd like hit it so slowly to go over it, like everything. Yep. Sure, I'll drive like that for a while. I'm glad it just wasn't me. I mean, you're an Olympic medalist and good under pressure. I thought maybe I was just cracking under the pressure, but no, there's, I mean, for the first three days he was home, he was like, you were just like carrying him like with every single thing I'd lay him in a bassinet. I'd be so scared. Now that I know he's like, you know, good. I'm like dancing around with him in the room now and like tickling him. Like I'm, he started to like, you can, you kind of started to like become more confident with him. But at first, I mean, we held him. So like the first time we could hold him was when he was like still under two pounds. I mean, well under two pounds still was the first time we held him and he's connected to IVs. He was connected to his feeding tube and connected to his breathing oxygen. And they had to like take him out of the incubator and wheel all of that stuff over next to you in the chair and then lay him on you. And he like couldn't move because if he moved, his like IV would come out or his NG tube would come out or his like CPAP would come out. So you had to like hold him still and we could only hold him twice a day. And, uh, but you could hold him as long as you would pretty much last in the chair. You could hold him till as long as he was doing well and you were doing well, you could just keep holding him. And there was one day Ari held him for like five hours straight and just wouldn't give up. And like everybody knew us in the hospital because every time we were in there, we would just hold him up until the day he left. We would like never have him in thing. We just wanted to hold him and like know that he was like loved in there. And still, I think we kind of maybe ruined it a little bit because now he just likes to be held, but I'll hold him all day if that's what it takes to get him to go to sleep. Yeah, you didn't ruin him. You read no. it, Dad. Good parents, good parents. Yeah. It sounds like Ari's got some good endurance if she could hold him for five hours. She almost walked back in there with adult diapers because then she's like, I think if I have that, then I can hold him for a few extra hours. And I'm like, babe, you really don't need to do that. Like, you're good. Like, we're okay. We'll be able to hold him as long as you want very soon. And she's like, okay, you're right. You're right. But there was... Two or three times, I think she was about to stop at CVS and get adult diapers on our way to the NICU to hang out with him just that much longer. Wow. Um, I mean, it sounds like she, he's got two, like, I was thinking about the genes. Like, obviously, you know, you, to be an NCAA champion, Olympic medalist, you got to have, like, some good genetic talent. But I was overlooking, like, the determination part. Both of you guys sound, like, super competitive, super determined. I mean, that, that's part of what makes you guys champions, so. Uh, I think cash is going to be great. I guess I don't want to project too far out. I mean, maybe he'll be into football or music. Who knows? But assuming he goes track and field, I mean, is he going to be a sprinter mid distance? Uh, yeah, it's still up for debates. I mean, if agents, if agents and shoe companies want to start sending letters, um, we're for sure accepting those now. Um, Doyle management's already sent their letter of, uh, of asked to represent the representation of them. Um, so, I mean, if other agencies want to send their offers to represent him, I mean, we're accepting those now, you know, he's 65 days, 60, whatever he is, six, 70 days old. We could sure we can make up some sort of futuristic deal. I'm sure. I'm not sure what the rules are on NIL. I think you have to wait for the due date. I think it <laughs> has to be date. December 29th. They haven't really thought about yeah. this one yet. I mean, I've already, I've already planned to see you with Nike and been like, Hey guys, like, you know, you want to get on him early. You can get him before he even gets home. You can get him when he's in the hospital still. You know, yeah. Hopefully, Nike. I don't know if I mean you're kind of a free agent, right? Like just in terms of like athletes, and but they had the whole big thing with maternity leave. You need to push for like paternity leave. You know, that's that's the next thing. Something, something. Um. All right. You want to talk a little running as well? Let's do it. Let's talk a little running. That's what. That's what's built around, right? That's why it's a cool story too. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I assume you guys. 
I mean, your wife's in the running, you know, family as well. Like, from what I've seen, everything on social media has just been amazing. The outpouring of support has that been helpful? Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, the the pregnancy was 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 awful too. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. I mean, it was it was really hard for both of us. Obviously, her more than me. She was going through the sickness, but to leave her and try to compete. Um, I mean, I was talking with Doyle about this, my agent, the other day about how many potential meets I. I don't want to say I skipped, but I didn't run at, or I didn't necessarily prepare the right way for, because I was, he said, I spent more time on the phone with him this year, changing flights around because of her than anything he's ever had with injury or anything. Um, and that's just because I wanted to be there for her and help her. And I was worried about her. Uh, so honestly, other than those sleep thing, this is like a cakewalk for me as far as worrying. Cause I know that he's all right. And his mother is there for him every step of the way. Um, I just don't like to leave the house now to work out. Cause I don't want to leave my, time with him <laughs> that's the hardest part every time i'm working out i'm thinking about man i can't wait to get back home to to hang out with him so uh the sleep factor is for sure there but it kind of again if you want to talk about a blessing he kind of came at the right time where he came in in between seasons where um i got time to kind of adapt to to being a dad adapt to having a newborn and um make those actual logistics adjustments and scheduling and practices to to still be able to compete at a high level um even with a little kiddo hanging out in the house. I wasn't going to start with your season last year, but I kind of alluded this in the intro. 2016, you ran 142.9 at the Olympics. Pretty good time to run a PB. Um, that left you as the Olympic bronze medalist. Next year, 143.6. You're trying a historic double at USA's. Didn't quite work out, but hey, I loved it. You got you to aim big. 2018, you were then part of the NLP, 143.12. And I think, was that PB again at USA's? Uh, Maybe not. No, I haven't PB'd since 16th. I mean, not PB, but season's best. You have, you have a habit of running very well at USA's. Or- I think it was at, a, that was in London in the Diamond League, I think, when I ran that in 18. Okay. Yeah. 2019, 143 again, 143.9. Made the final at Worlds. 2020, COVID, nobody counts that. 2021, I think if the Olympics had been a little bit earlier, you'd be the Olympic champion right now. I don't know if that makes you feel good or bad, but 143.17 to win the trials. And so this last year, you only ran 145.2, but you just, that was your best time of the year, and you still did it at USA's. Yeah, it was a, for sure a weird, like I said, a weird year. I mean, Puerto Rico was my opening meet. Um, and I remember we went there to have a vacation. That's part of the reason we chose the Puerto Rico meet was we were going to kind of kick off our season with a little, uh, weekend away, knowing that we had a kiddo at the end of the season that uh, we might not have that opportunity post year to do kind of a, a getaway together. Um, and we went there and we actually flew home the morning after the meet instead of staying for a week because of her sickness. And then everything was kind of built around, around that and, and trying to get her as healthy, healthy as possible. Um, so my head was for sure distracted, um, for sure was doing everything I could to train. I mean, there was some obviously normal injury stuff that I dealt with this year, but, uh, I for sure was not in like the most proper headspace most of the year. Um, but I felt like I was in shape and, and fit enough to learn well at trials. And that was going to be where I was ready to go, um, in Eugene. And then mentioned to you in the, in the pre pre pre-talk there that I got food poisoning literally the last meal before I got on the plane at home and pretty much had it up until about 
the the pre-race day before the prelim so for sure was not uh aptly nutritionally prepared for for that weekend um and did whatever i could uh tactically didn't execute the final um but in a in a in a u.s final if you're not either tactically on or, or physically on um doesn't matter how good you are there's the you leave a room for for that not to be successful that's what i did so yeah how hard was that i mean you've had so much success with the you know world and eugene this year and to not make the team like was that a new phase of running for you to sort of deal with disappointment like that or do you consider oh you know getting eighth at world's disappointing i mean i, I don't know how you evaluate it but i would i would personally like oh i made the final but was this a di- new level of disappointment for you um i think the tokyo final was uh really close to this disappointment the doha final was different that was the day everything went down with that morning i was and everything went down with with the organ project um my headspace was i i i i love that race back but i that was gonna i was always behind the eight ball when that race started um mentally um but then tokyo was just execution i mean really that's where i that's why i was so frustrated with that i just didn't execute what i wanted to do um and then the final and the usa's was very similar execution physically just didn't have the 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 snap to kind of make up for those mistakes i made um so i for sure went into some went into some hard self-reflection after those two races um i remember like we went back to the uh to the airbnb after and like no one would talk to me in the airbnb and finally like ari spoke up and she's like we're ordering pizza and i'm like great we're ordering pizza and i just ate pizza drank beer and like sat in a hot tub that night after the final and just kind of like i remember we went like full board like one of my buddies he's like my assistant coach on the like we, we were talking hot tub and i went full board into like i could have done this 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 and he's like looks at me after 20 minutes he's like you done like move on like you can't change anything now I'm like, all right, you're right. And I mean, a couple of days, a couple of weeks after I for sure was, you know, it was tough. It was tough to watch worlds. I didn't watch worlds the first day. Like I turned it on and I walked out of the room and my wife watched it with, with a couple of other people. And I went upstairs and did other stuff. And then the second day I said, I'm over it. I got my, my jeer at worlds. Like, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not there. It's not cool anymore. I got that out of my system and I watched it and enjoyed every minute of it and cheered for everybody there. Um, guys who I, you know, look up to and still and run with and wanted to see them succeed and then try to go over to Europe and at least pick up the pieces from, from the season um, and come home and now I get to be a dad. So it didn't, it didn't end up being a bad year after all. Yeah. You're being a dad, you know, Trump's all of that, right? Trump's all of that. Yeah. And also like, well, you made a lot of teams, so you're going to know some of the sprinters, but having already have been a sprinter in your life, I feel like, Track and field, there's such like everybody has their own event. Like distance runners know way I know way more about distance running. I know a little bit about sprinting. I know almost nothing about field events. But having a wife, you know, who was like a world class sprinter, does that sort of expose you to like I mean, every event you probably really know what's going on. Are you more aware? Is it funner for you to watch track meets than the rest of us? I for sure am like a track like I enjoy track. I enjoy watching it. I enjoy every event. Um, like, I mean, we, I, you were talked about like Devin and I did that podcast for a while where we were breaking everything down. Like that was so fun for me to like go through results and like really be in it. 
Um, I wasn't as like deep into it this year as what I usually am as far as like other events and debating this and debating that. And then obviously Ari is the same way. Like Ari is invested in track and field all the way through. So there's a lot of, we just had debates about uh, Randolph Ross and the Bowerman and, and that whole thing 10 minutes ago before we got on this call. It was literally like we sat at the table and we had a full on 10 minute discussion. About, I mean, that's like a normal night in our house. Um, and I'm friends with every event across the board. I mean, whether it's through door management and the agency and guys I've traveled with the meets and sat on trains across Europe with, or whether it's just friendships I made from college through teams, like for sure have a branch out into almost every event group. I have somebody who I consider probably a friend in almost every event. Um, and that's fun for me because it allows me to enjoy and watch every event and almost have somebody to cheer for and, 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 you know, have fun through in every event in track and field. Well, I should probably have Ari on the podcast, but yeah, one question, because I should know more about this. I don't know much about the sprinting, but like, I mean, she was an NCAA champion, 100 and 200, right? As a freshman, is that right? Yeah. First freshman to, yeah. And then collegiate record holder, indoor 200 at the time, 2017, she ran on the world prelim four by one team, should have ran on the final, should have ran in 2016 relays, should have ran on the final there. Her and her and the Oregon girls should all ran. Um, because there was some debate then, you know, of her going pro, she stayed in school. Yeah. But then she never really pursued the pro career. Like, like what, what was the rationale there? What was the thinking? I mean, because she sounds like a track sort of lifer. There was, there was a lot of uh, outside pressures that affected her and her mindset and her, her, her ability to enjoy the sport, I'd say. Um, I mean, since she picked up track in high school she's been a prodigy i mean i think she's the second most decorated high school athlete in track and field in california um i mean she's like the real deal when it when it goes i mean she went to long beach poly she prodigy and was she talked about all the recruiting trips and she's like i went to miami and florida state and i was on a helicopter here and did this here i was like i literally drove to like miami of ohio i was like 30 minutes down the road and had lunch with the coach who was like 75 and like enjoyed lunch and that we drove back home like that was my recruiting trips like i yeah my recruiting trips were completely different than hers and so there was a lot of just out there was a lot of factors that they kind of led into it um and then ultimately she made decision um of what made her happy and i think she will tell you she made she'll make the decision 10 times again um and but she still is she still loves the sport she's addicted to the sport she loves being a fan of the sport um i mean we'll go through meets and we'll just like we'll the roster app we're like big into it they competing against each other and picking people and picking teams and debating this and debating that i mean um it's for sure it's kind of a lot of fun because not many couples can have a full-on track conversation at the dinner table and really dive into something yeah i mean my wife's like you really like watching these people run around short shorts and i'm like not how i would put it but yeah you know um but she knows i love it um okay i'm I'm rewinding things here 2021 olympic final like tactically what do you like you're saying you felt like you really messed up like what do you mean by that uh i made a mistake at 200 meters where i was in a good position and i allowed a guy on the inside and a guy on the outside to squeeze me back. And instead of fighting for that position and putting forth the effort to fight to go towards the front of the race, I let everybody go and kind of settled into the back. And then 
by the time I got wound up to go and got my legs going, everybody was going in front of me. And at that point, you can't gap at that point in the eight other best guys in the world on that day. Um, you can't give them any kind of head start, no matter how good you are. Um, so by the time that I got going, it was almost too late. And then you just kind of pick up the scraps and mentally you're defeated by the fact you get to hundred meters and you're sprinting all out and they're gone and you're just like, you can't do anything about it. So I think I pretty much lost the race at 200 meters. Uh, cause as you know, in the 800, you hand fighting, arm fighting, fighting for position is not necessarily the greatest thing ever to do, but in a tactical slow race like that, you have to do it. And I just made the wrong decision there. And it, I think that one decision cost me any opportunity to any sort of medal, let alone win it. Looking back how well you ran at the trials and even just how consistent you've been. I mean, Emmanuel career is a good runner, but you're, you're as good as he is. Yeah, I for sure walked away from that race. Like I said, it was one of the toughest, toughest immediate defeats of of my sports life, I'd say, that I can remember. Yeah, pretty crazy. And then 2019, I completely forgot about that. The day of the final, like Alberta was banned from the sport that morning. Is that correct? Is that the... I got a text at, I got a text from Ari at like 5 a.m. Doha time that said, don't check your phone. Obviously gonna check my phone yeah and i see it and so at 5 a.m i'm not going back to sleep um i was roommates with bryce at the time um and so i didn't want to be in a room with bryce going into the final um i didn't want to really be in contact with anybody from usa um track and field at that time i mean there was a lot of i went down i remember i went down the elevator to get breakfast and everybody's just staring at me i mean my coach was just banned um it's not necessarily the greatest look as an athlete so I moved into the the Nike hotel into a room there and, and pretty much isolated myself. My phone deleted social media and kind of tried to lock myself in. I remember even warming up. I went over um, and said, this is the best I felt all weekend, like physically. Um, but then mentally, I just didn't have it. I was so drained. It's I got halfway through the race and mentally slipped and it just became like an uphill battle. And it just, it all hit me after the race. I for sure had a breakdown in the tunnel before I went through the mix zone. There was a there was a stopping point where I got stopped to make sure that I was prepared to go through the media and handle the media. And I hit a wall and sat there for about five minutes and never moved. I was almost paralyzed to realizing that like, like I was almost a very similar situation to to 2021. I thought I could compete to win. I really truly did. Um and then you obviously factor in that I just picked up my life and moved from Ohio to Portland and now I'm gonna have to figure out what I'm gonna do. I have no idea how I'm going to train, where I'm going to train, who I'm going to train with. And it all hit me at that moment when everything slowed down from that day and the adrenaline was gone. So for sure was carrying that into that, that two laps around the track. So did you come through and talk to the media? Yeah, I did. Try to pull Um, up the video or something. Yeah, I I did. I feel like I've watched the video again. I feel like I handled it really well and I was very honest about it. Um, There was no, like, there was obviously a slight bit of preparedness from, from my agent from USATF. Um, but a lot of it was truly like how I felt true honesty. Um, I prepared my, I, I was ready for it. I knew what I wanted to say, how I wanted to handle it. Um, I didn't really, I don't think I took many questions. Obviously it wouldn't have really went that far with it, but, um, I did what I could to, you know, put myself out there to be fair to you guys as, as media people to, to not just walk through. I've had some times where I've walked through obviously younger in my career, but as I get older and older and older, I try to understand you guys have a job to do and try to to give you as much as i 
fairly can, I guess. Does that make sense? No. Yeah, it totally does. And I really appreciate it. It's funny because I, I didn't know we were going to go here at all during this um, podcast. I, I sort of vaguely remember it. But I, I tell everyone, like we were saying on the main portion of the podcast we recorded earlier, Max Siegel came up. We can get to him in a minute. But I was like, Max should tell his story. Because the story he tells will be better than when we make up for him, you know. Like everyone has a story; they have their point of view, and like if you don't telling it, I don't think it really ever hurts you. My thing about my only thing about it is like it is my defense of athletes is it is that that is the. I mean, you're an athlete. You you, you ran. You co like you've dealt with it. You've been in the sport. It's such a high strong high stress situation of track and field that however long your event is, that lead up of that day the months and months that you put into that one opportunity, that one gunshot and to compete in the length of the event that you're in. And then whether it, and if it doesn't go to what you think you're capable of, or you don't achieve what you thought you could trying to then bring yourself back together to then answer you guys when it's, you're not doing anything wrong by asking us questions, you're doing your job, but to try to get yourself gathered to accurately answer the questions without that pure emotional letdown is is one of the toughest things for sure as an athlete um to have to deal with for sure it's not easy yeah i hadn't really thought about it but track is so unique right like you spend all season all year pretty much training for like anywhere from like 10 seconds in, in you know your your wife's case to like under two minutes for you you know 10k runners under 28 minutes it's like it's not that much time. Whereas even a soccer game, a basketball game, it's, you're out there for a couple of hours, even more time to sort of even process the game. You kind of realize you're losing maybe even, I mean, it's, it's, it's so unique. And it's also different. I mean, you, I mean, if you want to look at it as like our Olympics or our USA's for some people is like, you're their NBA finals, their NFL Super Bowl, their playoffs. So if you fall short of that, let's say you, you get knocked out in the playoffs, like, it's just a little bit different feeling than you get all the way to the very, very end, you know, and you, you, you like, it's almost like getting beat on a buzzer beater every time you run. It's pretty much how, how it is. Cause exactly what you said. It's not like you're very rarely in the race. Are you processing the fact that like, wow, this isn't going to plan. Like if you're like, oh, I'm trying to be top three and you're third, you're like, you're, you're going through the mix. So I'm pretty happy still. But if you're going in to win the race and you aren't really giving up on it until you cross the line, it's not much time to really process the fact you didn't achieve everything you put into it prior to it um, until you're asked about it and you're vulnerable. Yeah. In some ways, like losing the Super Bowl is like worse than losing, like not making the playoffs. You know what I'm saying? But mm -hmm. there you are in the finals of the Worlds or the Olympics and it didn't quite go to form. Um, yeah. With the NOP thing, like, that's what I'm trying to think. Like you didn't know much beforehand, right? Like, did you know anything like that? There was a chance he would get banned. Like if you talked to Alberto since then, were you pissed? Like, I mean, now it's been what, three years. Like what are your thoughts on it? Sort of three years later. Um, I don't really have any like new thoughts about it. Uh, I haven't had any direct communication with Alberto. It was something that Nike and everybody put up a boundary amongst, even though there's technically you could have communication non track related. Um, um, I have been told that he's like still supportive and praise about my family. And like, we had a really good relationship when we were both athletes. So you can't necessarily take away that, that piece of it. Um, but I wasn't told 
I was told enough to know that there was an investigation. I was told, um, I think I was blindsided as much as what Nike was as much as it and Alberto was, um, especially for it to be released when it was, um, there was supposed to be, I was told there was supposed to be a release of a verdict. Um, but it wasn't supposed to be anywhere around world championships. It was supposed to be following world championships and that they were confident in the verdict that would be released. So there was for sure a, that's why I think it was so hard on that day. It was, it was completely blindsided. Um, not something that I had prepared for. It's not like I was told five days before, like, Hey, it's going to be released on your final, like be prepared. Even if it is, doesn't go the way we're expecting. So, um, but I felt confident in what the team was obviously, um, I worked really, really hard with Labadee and Akron to get where I was and wasn't going to step into a situation that, that put anything like that at risk. Um, I have nothing but me personally, great things to say about Alberto and the Oregon Project and my experiences there. I mean, um, it was, yeah, nothing. There's nothing that I could look back on and be like, hmm, maybe, or, huh, that makes sense. It was, I mean, I just, you bust your ass under Alberto and you ran as hard as you could every day in practice and the results were there. That was literally what it was built on. Um, so nothing's really changed in that, that respect. Uh, it's just kind of, it was the timing of it was unfortunate. And obviously the point of my career was kind of unfortunate to make such a drastic change from coach Labadian and in a college system to a very high level professional system. Now back to a different training philosophy. There was for sure a like big adjustment period between the three. Yeah, I'm sure. And then the Alberto thing, even like afterwards, the whole safe sport stuff, like even for me in the sport, because Alberto, obviously there'd been the BBC stuff and there was like some, I don't know what the word is, smoke around the program or just, you know, some stuff. And like, you're probably aware of that, but the safe sport stuff, or even for me, came completely out of nowhere. Like I was so yeah, shocked I when I heard that. Yeah, I didn't know. A lot of that stuff happened obviously well before I was even considering joining or even had talks about joining. Most of that happened. Um, some of it happened somewhat soon, but I never felt different about it. I never, never felt that there was any sort of unsafe environment as an athlete. Obviously, not being female, obviously might have a different you know approach about it. Uh, older Alberto, I know for a fact that there were some differences in Alberto's uh, intensity when I was there versus prior years. I know he was a lot more intense earlier um, years versus when I was there, but, um, a lot of that, I was very taken back on and could not believe it. And a lot of it was also taken out of context, knowing Alberto as a person, like one of the funniest dudes I've ever met. And a lot of that I think was taken well, well, well out of context. I will say that, um, he's one of the, like, he's one of the funniest guys I've ever known as a coach. Yeah. Well, I think there was like, well, there's two angles, right? There was some of the stuff that was more public, like in the New York times, like fat shaming and treatment of Mary Kane. But then, I mean, ultimately he was banned, right? For alleged, or I mean, the safe sport convicted him, sexual assault, right? I mean, like, that's completely different. Like that stuff, I'm sure you'd never, or had you heard anything like no. anything yeah, like no. that? No, any, nothing like that. Yeah, I never would have thought that could even be possible when I was there. Yeah, I mean, it's just sad or unfortunate or terrible. I don't know what the right word is. I, I, yeah. Well, let's turn to more positive news because you're talking about coaching and Coach Labadee, your coach at Akron. It was announced today Akron is bringing back men's cross country. Yeah, so 
it's a big it's a big step in the right direction. There's a completely new staff in place now with the program. Um, so I think it's a huge direction to kind of crawl program back to where it was just, you know, three or four years ago, put multiple people in the NTA championships fighting for MAG titles every time they step on track and uh, can be putting out, you know, Olympians and world championship qualifiers on a, on a pretty somewhat regular basis. There was at least, you know, a trickle of them through. So I think uh, it's for sure huge steps in the right direction to kind of get that back. And you were saying before we got started, today was your first day on campus since when? Uh, I was the last time I was on campus was the MAC championship before the COVID outbreak. So whatever that March, whenever the MAC championship was before, um, I was training in Akron doing a training stint at the MAC championship, watching it. Um, then days later was when the NBA shut down and everything went to the world went to the apocalyptic state. Uh, and then soon after that's when everything was cut when I was still in Portland right before I moved back. And I moved back right after it got cut. So I never had any reason to go back on campus. And so I've lived within 30 minutes of campus and made no trips back to campus since since then. So today was the first time. So you're sort of protesting the program or the treatment of is that a fair assessment? I for sure I mean I made a I made a post, um, a blog post, Instagram post where I, I blacked out Akron on my jersey after I won the NCA title. Um I for sure directly wrote emails to say that that I don't support them using my image and likeness and um trying to promote things with with my gain um or their gain from from me if they weren't going to support a program that really had no legitimate reason to be cut i think that was the biggest thing i I, everybody understood you needed in covid to to make financial choices but to cut a program we talked about that was 10k operating budget 15k operating budget and makes the school money with walk-ons and ohio aid and you can't win without it. There's all those reasons and they didn't care. It was, it was very frustrating to, to see one of the strongest athletic programs in Akron, if not the strongest, most successful kind of just be chopped up and thrown to the side and been like, ah, you don't need it. Thank you for standing up for, you know, long distance runners. Did you know the program was, was coming back? I mean, that this was in the works. Yeah, I knew, um, we, there was a new AD come in. Um, that new AD was very adamant. It was on his agenda to bring back cross country. He was very shocked it ever got cut in the first place. Um, now I didn't believe that he actually followed through with it, let alone followed through with it as quick as he has. Um, and I knew it would be kind of tough. Cause like I said, they just hired a whole new staff from top to bottom. So I didn't know where that stood with bringing back cross country, but I was told about heard through the grapevine about three weeks ago. It was like, it needed final approval. And then I was told on the phone by the AD about two weeks ago that, that it, it was happening. It just happened. I had already scheduled going back to campus with the coaching staff today, like last week before any of us knew that it was going to be announced. Like they didn't even know it was going to be announced today. They just knew it had already been approved. Um, so it just happened to be the timing of me going to campus was the day it was approved, which kind of worked out good because people on campus saw me back and kind of were putting two and two together for sure. So where are you actually living? I know you're in the Akron area, but what, where are you? Uh, I'm about 20 minutes north of campus of Akron. Since about about 25 minutes south of Cleveland, so I'm literally like right in between. There's the Cuyahoga Valley National Park runs all the way in between, and I'm pretty much like dead smack in the middle of it. So, training wise, I'm three minutes from my from the gym and PT clinic I I go to every day, and I'm five minutes from my favorite trail spot. So I'm almost my training situation couldn't be any better um, right now as far as location. 
But for the record, you're a Bengals fan, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not a Browns. No, I would never. I think I might bet home. Yeah, I didn't want people yeah, to get any wrong wrong thoughts in their minds. So, Coach Labadee, he left it, I guess, in 2020, but you're still working with him. Looking ahead to COVID threw me off. 2023 is this next year. Yeah, we got a world championship in Hungary. Then we got an Olympics the year after that. Like you can get right back on the saddle. Like have you guys sat down? What are your goals for 2023? Are you going to do anything differently? Or you feel like, Hey, I did great in 2021, 2022. I had all these other things going on. Like what's the plan? Yeah, I think there was obviously that we, we don't want to take 2022 and just throw it out the window and say like, we have to scrap everything. Like training didn't work. We didn't run well. We didn't run 143. We didn't, you know, make the team. There's a lot of factors that obviously hindered my performances this season. Um, but I think for sure we realized um, that I have to train slightly differently as far as age-wise and staying healthy-wise. One of the one of the issues I've had is just trying to keep uh, training consistently going. I'd get like a really, really good stint and then I'd kind of level off because of injury, dip back down and then have to fight back up. And it was kind of one of these things the whole year to get to USA's. Um, this is the, even with, the NICU and the trips and living at the hospital and, and the newborn and, and her being sick prior to that. Like this is one of the best falls strength, like trainings I've had of my career since being at Akron and cross country. Um, the healthiest I've been in the fall going into winter, going into uh, like Christmas in the beginning of January, I've always seemed to always have some sort of like naggy little thing come off of fall and I'm as healthy as I've ever been. Um, and so the goal is to kind of just keep that strength side as strong as possible through the beginning of outdoor um, and kind of just continue to stay as healthy as possible um, and not overdo anything prior to that and just kind of get a huge block of really consistent training in um, and then just kind of let the horses run when it comes to June, July, August and really just like take the reins off and just go after it when, when I'm healthy. And 2017, you tried to double, but I think of you as an 800 runner. Is this, you thinking solely about the 800? Yeah, that's the focus. Um, I think there's a lot I still want to achieve in that. Um, I'd love to compete for 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 a world championship medal in the 1500, but I think there's still more I want to achieve in the in the mile right now, um, or the eight right now. So I think the focus is for sure. The focus is the eight, but I think there'll be more there'll be more miles on my schedule. I think to help the eight, I think I need to get back. That's one thing we talked about. Whether it's actually fifty fifty miles 1500s to 800s competition level um but it needs to be more training based and that that gap needs to be closer when it comes to actual results too i think for me to be successful at the eight that's where i've been the most successful this season i've run my my best miles and my most consistent miles has been where i've been the best in my eight so they, they go hand in hand for me so i think that's you'll see me run more miles but i think 100 percent my focus will be the 800 come july consistency from 2016 to 2021 when you look at it big pictures, it's pretty amazing. I don't think anyone in the world's had it. I'm going to double check them. I'm going to pour through the stats after we get off, but it's pretty good. Turning to sort of governor things, Max Siegel's been in the news a lot, and I know you have some opinions on him. Actually, I don't even know what they are. Jonathan Galt was saying, like, because I, I said, hey, did, I was trying to get in touch with you and trying to verify an email, and he's like, oh, I've also been, I was on, Twitter DMs with him about Max Siegel. But I have no idea what you said, but let's talk about Max Siegel a little bit. Yeah, that was uh, that was frustrating. That is frustrating. Um, so have you said anything publicly? or how, like, 
I assume you have, otherwise John would have known about it. But uh... my only tweet was, I think I said something along the lines of, "Imagine if he gave thirty athletes ten thousand dollars to train with, and how that would be such life changing." And then I said, "Oh wait, he'd have to give up flying private a few times a year." And then the article came out where he said that, the, "Do you see any gold medalists like complaining?" And Jonathan quote tweeted my tweet and said, well, he's not a gold medalist, but he's a bronze medalist. And he's, this seems pretty outspoken about it. So, um, yeah. Uh, I hope you saw the Michael Johnson tweet though, right? I don't think so. I don't think I follow Michael Johnson. I think I see Michael Johnson's tweets from a, from a distance on Twitter. I, I, well, I personally need to be way more involved in Twitter and social media. I same. I I Twitter for me is like falling to the wayside. I for sure don't not as deep in Twitter as what I hear a lot of it through my talk about hear a lot of it through my wife. My wife is like deep in track Twitter. Like the other night, she put her phone down and she said, "I'm not dealing with people tonight on Twitter about track." I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, "I don't want to talk about it." She's like, "Put her phone away." <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm 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 far from that that side of Twitter. I need one be more on track Twitter, but also like sprinter track Twitter is different. There's like race. Oh yeah. You, you know, race take or race TV, whatever oh, it is. In, 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 in sprint Instagram is like, I'm in sprint Instagram. Like I've been in rooms. It's like, there's some people who go live in sprint Instagram and I've been in there arguing like myself because they think that we're just like middle distance. People are like, they think tactical races are like, the lamest thing ever and they think we're we can't beat anybody and on the world stage is us like oh yeah they they track track instagram lives and track twitter are like a whole different world than what it's so funny because like let's run would be like let's run distance instagram twitter sidious everybody's like way way over here on like the 200 meter start and then the like literally the parking lot of hayward like would be where it's where sprint social media is and track and field it's like two completely different sports yeah, it's crazy because I'm like, whoa. I mean, it, it's. Oh yeah, you should you should if you use Instagram, you should you should follow a couple of the guys that go live during the random nights, and you'll see them pop up, and then just sit in the rooms, and they there'll be random Jamaican people come in there, like random people who like aren't even athletes; they're just like fans, but they're just like going hard at people. Like I know Trayvon and like Marvin um, Bracy and like Fred Curley are kind of involved in it, and they kind of speak their mind sometimes and get going at it. Um, but yeah, they uh, that's a that's a that's a world in itself. But I was, I've been scrolling here the tweet to find Michael Johnson's tweet. But Michael Johnson is my new favorite track guy on Twitter. <laughs> he, I just love his opinions about stuff. But there, he quoted the San Diego Tribune quoted Max saying, "You know, sh- since we show me one gold medal, it's critical of me." Mm-hmm. And there's just a picture. Michael just posted a picture an emoji with a guy raising his hand and says times 12 for the Olympic gold medals. I mean, for the gold medals. So <laughs> the two things that stood out to me are the, the differences in other Olympic similar programs or federations across it, USA basketball, USA swimming, et cetera, that, that percentage revenue difference. Um, I understand Max's reasoning for bringing people on. And I don't think it's necessarily, it's a lot of people go at Max himself. I think a lot of it's obviously Max accepts the money, but ultimately USATF offered Max the money and signed the contract with Max and agreed to it. So who's really to blame is, I mean, if you agreed to a company to, to pay you millions and millions of dollars 
Like, is it really your fault if you're the one who got the contract negotiated? It's or is it USATF's fault for you know agreeing to that in the first place? Um, and then I think it's just the lack of transparency of it. That's the second thing to me. Um, there's a lot of lack of transparency amongst USATF. There's a lack of transparency amongst funding, um, how it works, who gets funded, why people get funded, why the amounts are like different, why they get cut. Some grants get put out. I mean, it's weird. It's a very, it's a very odd thing, USATF and how it works. And the I'm sure on the media side you deal with it. Sometimes I've I've had some connections with it this year. Some different smaller person content creators have had trouble with USATF getting credentials um, because of posts they've made or pieces they've made about them. Um, even though they weren't going there to do that, they were just going there to shoot athletes and shoot pictures or video. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very little weird thing. It's very odd. Yeah, I think the lack of transparency, communications, I think they do a poor job on that front. Um, and like you said, the board, I think, is probably as much as a fault as Max. They gave him the contract. I mean, Max talks about what a great negotiator is, how he's bringing in all this endorsement money. The best contract he probably negotiated was the one he did with the board. It's his own. Holy moly. I mean, I, the, I mean, look at the World Cup right now and what it is. The dude who is in charge of all that gets paid less than what Max Siegel does to put on the USATF Journey to Gold that runs in Waco, Texas and at some Grand Prix meet with like four people, 2,000 people at it. Yeah, like total across NBC and in person. Like in the World Cup's the biggest event in the world and a dude who is in charge of that gets paid less than him. Like, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It's just, it, and you have athletes who every year prize money, appearance fees, travel funds, opportunities get less and less and less and less and less. I mean, there's meets coming up in indoor that, that I started, my, my agents had a communication. He called me and said, Hey, they don't have any money this year or their hat, their money's half. And it's just like, like what? Like these meets were like staple meets on the, on the, on the calendars. And now there's like no money. I mean, in a sport like that, where that's struggling, but then he's continually, his is going like this and everybody else is going like this. Shoe contracts are way less. I mean, way, way, way less than they've ever been. I mean, the money is just not in the sport, except for Max Siegel's case. And that's, that's where to me, it's like, doesn't all line up. <laughs> I mean, I know you can't really talk about this, but. Maybe when you retire, but that side of things we don't see just the money being less. But even for you, right? Like, let's say money was the same in the sport. Twenty sixteen, you're the hot thing out of college, Olympic bronze medalist. I assume you're bringing it in in terms for a track athlete. You know, compared to other pro sports, it's probably pennies. Um, but now, you know, last year you don't make the worlds. You get fourth. You run one forty five. I don't like. I don't know. I could see you making, I have no idea, like five times less money than you did in 2016. And, but like, I mean, now you're a dad, that sort of stuff. Like, you know, do you feel more pressure? Like, do you like, Oh my God, I have no, or my contract's good. I'm good for a couple of years. Like just what's your sort of general framework with all of this? There was for sure a period in my career where I had to learn to deal with that piece of, I now provide for a family i now provide for my wife i now provide for myself like i'm no longer this like college kid living because i mean when i was running in 16 17 
I was still a young little kid who had an apartment in Portland who had a, I, I had bought a house in Akron, but that's at that time it was like nothing. Um, I had like no expenses. I had really no significant other. I mean, I was kind of just, you know, living life as this young 21, 22, 23 year old. Right. Yeah. It's so easy because all you're thinking about is competing. All you're thinking about is winning your aces. But now there's 100% exactly what I told you. Like my indoor schedule is built around not only because there's no world indoors. So it's built around success for outdoors is one. But then 1A is how do I capitalize on the money aspect of it? How do I capitalize on my financial ability to make money in indoors? If it's whether it's the individual meet paying me, whether it's that meets ranked high enough where I'll get a ranking bonus to then be ranked higher at the end of the season because I lost funding because I'm 21 on the IAAF rankings, not 15th, even though I'd probably still, I mean, you, you're going to probably come out with your end of year rankings in the 800. I'm probably not fourth, maybe. I mean, I think I'd be close to up there still, and I'm still not going to be funded as like a tier athlete, even though it's like, it's weird things like that. What does that mean? Before the podcast, because you were talking about Max and athletes being funded, and I'm like, wait, Clayton Murphy, he's a star. He gets paid a lot by Nike, but I'm sure that you know fluctuates year to year. But like, what does that even mean, being a funded athlete? Can you explain that a little bit more? So it's changed since I came in. So it used to have tier one, tier two, and then like a developmental phase. I was a developmental athlete in 16 and 17, and then you move. I moved straight to tier one. Um and then different tiers were funded, different amounts of, of a training stipend, of coaching stipends. It's all, USATF has it all posted, but then they transitioned to this like one tier only criteria where everybody's lumped into this one tier. Um, and I got an email about three weeks ago that said, because of your world ranking, you're no longer like qualified to be a tiered athlete. Um, so I lose insurance. I lose like a coaching stipend. I lose a base stipend. I lose a medical stipend. Um, there's supposedly some still travel opportunities for grants and different things like that throughout the year. But a lot of those things are now how I have no longer am, am supported through USATF in that retrospect. Wait, the insurance thing is crazy. Is, is Ari working? Does she have a job? Like, no. So that's my biggest. Yeah. So we, yeah. So she owns her own business. So she was on my insurance. So now either I pay a premium on the insurance to have a continuation year of it. And then obviously the goal would be 2020 for to be back a tiered athlete i would hope that i can make up the ground to be back in tiered the following year um but otherwise i'm shopping for insurance i have to make a decision by the end of this week i'm shopping for insurance for for that and that was obviously not something sitting in the NICU you wanted to see come across your email to say you're no longer you have your email you have your insurance that's no longer something you want to see when you have a 30 day old kiddo in the NICU and without yeah. the insurance you'd be bankrupt i don't I don't care how much money you made just after this, you know. Oh, we got the, we got the, just the birth. We got just the birth. And that was funny to me was the birth was like, I think 13 or something. But because I heard this story, because they do so much business with the insurance company, they only build the insurance like $1,400. But had I taken that out of pocket and not had insurance, I would have paid 12,000 because they don't do a lot of business with me. It's literally what somebody told me in finance at the, at the hospital. And I was like, What? multi-billion billion dollar insurance companies get a, a a break on how much they have to pay out of pocket but me nah oh, no. you pay the full yeah, price if you don't have insurance you pay the most you pay the full price you don't get any discount and it's like what it's like you could do a payment we do payment plans you know zero percent insurance payment plans no money down i'm like what it's still you're still paying sixteen thousand or twelve thousand doesn't matter how you divvy it up 
Yeah. But then the NICU for 60 days? That's hundreds of thousands. I haven't got that bill. I only got one. We got one bill for an x-ray ultrasound from him, and it was like $600. And literally, I remember the ultrasound on that day. The lady walked in, scanned his head like this, and then walked out. And it was like $600-something. I can't imagine what the everything else is. Yeah, I think every self-employed person, like that's exactly what I am. I'm on my wife's insurance. You know, Obamacare was pretty good in that sense, though. It is easy for some point. If I had to get on insurance, I could get an exchange and get insurance. But otherwise, like, it's very hard. But it's sort of crazy. You have one bad year, boom, you lose your insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pro sports. I mean, I guess if you get cut from the Dallas Cowboys, you'd probably lose your insurance, too. Maybe not. Who knows? But. Yeah, but you're making a lot more money to kind of just pick up the tab. And it's, yeah, it, even a full-time athlete like myself who doesn't have a secondary job is not making enough to necessarily think that throwing, I mean, $1,500, $1,000, whatever an insurance premium is now to cover it, a kiddo in the Nick that has an at-risk, you know, at-risk newborn and, and wife and doesn't necessarily have, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go bankrupt over paying for insurance now, but paying $1,500 out of pocket for sure becomes a, an expense that wasn't something that I had, you know, prior. So it's, it's, yeah, it's different for sure. Yeah, it's nuts. And I, I, I just want to, I'm looking at these stats in my sheet here. I said this on the regular podcast, but in case somebody's listening to this part, because, you know, your interviews can probably be at the end. Back to Max Siegel. USATF revenue and sponsorship revenue essentially in 2015 2016 2017 2018 was all bigger than it was in 2019 2020 2021 so sounds to me they're going the wrong direction this i mean i don't have to tell you the direction of the sport's going i don't have to tell you the the direction that that the inner workings of the sport is going um but according to max siegel that's not the case so yeah but we do have la 2028 i mean that is the opportunity everyone keeps pointing to but also, a lot of people believe, oh, we'll have Eugene 2021 or 2022. It ended up being, it's going to make tracks popular overnight. It's not the case. Um, I, I want the one thing I discovered the, was your podcast with Devin Allen. You guys got to bring that back. It was only like a couple episodes. You, you could give us insight into the NFL as well. Please bring it back. Yeah, we had fun with that. It was, uh, Devin's dude, Devin is a dude. Devin is a, that's a podcast. If you want to have a podcast, person Devin would be a, a great podcast guest because his he's one of the he's one of the most genuine guys on the circuit um he claims that he is the one who connected Ari and I and claims that they were the reason they were married is because of Devin even though I don't know if that's necessarily true but Devin claims that he's the reason that we're together um and he is one of the most genuine nicest Come, funny enough he actually texted me when Cash was born and said I was a preemie baby I was in the NICU and he said, I was thinking he was born at, I think he said 28 weeks, maybe or 27 weeks too. So he said, he said, cash will turn out to be a hurdler just like me. So, um, I mean, just text like that out of the blue, he'd text me and it's like, Hey dude, like I made it through there and look at me. It turned out pretty good. You yeah, know, he, and he is, he is a really good dude. We had him on the podcast maybe two years ago. One of the few sprinters we ever had. I'm not sure why we did. Maybe because he broke 13 seconds, but my brother and I are, are uh, NICU babies. We're only six weeks early. You know, but twins, it's, we had it easy. There's just two of us that we had to get out of there. Yeah. But, well, I also think I need to bring your wife on as a guest because, one, she had to you know, actually deliver the baby. And, oh, my God, her pregnancy sounds about 
a hundred times harder than my wife's. I hope my wife's not listening because I'm sure no pregnancies, no pregnancies that no easy. Pregnancy but. Is great. I expected, I mean, I expected the worst, you know, but I expected the 2 a.m. cravings, but I didn't expect the 2 a.m. like puke in a bucket cravings all the time, which was not fun. Well, Cash, it sounds like he's a tough kid. Um, glad he's thriving. Clayton, thank you for coming on, spending the time with us. What's your, if you got anything else you want to say, I need one piece of parenting advice or what's the biggest surprise about being a parent? I need the parenting advice. I'm I'm only, I mean, I spent 65 days where somebody changed the diaper for me and, and fed them for a while. So I, I only have, a, you know, a week and a half of experience of this, but uh, I never thought, I mean, the love factor is there, but I'm like addicted to my son. Like I'm just addicted to being around him and like holding him and seeing him. Um, and the one piece of advice that I got from somebody last week in that I will tell anybody newborn parent wise is just sleep whenever you can. doesn't matter if it's at 7 PM and you're like, you're not going to be able to go to sleep. If you have the opportunity to sleep again at 10 PM when he sleeps, you're going to sleep at 10 PM when he sleeps. So it doesn't matter what time of day it is. doesn't matter if it's 8 AM, 10 AM, 1 PM. Close your eyes when he closes his eyes and enjoy your sleep. That's all I got to say. Hey, you know, you're pro parent. Sleep sleep when he sleeps. Sleep whenever you can. There's no point to try to, there's no point to try to sleep at night. Someone told me you're 50 50. You're 50 50 if you're going to sleep at night. Yeah. They're like, sleep when, essentially, like, sleep when you can and sleep when your kid sleeps. Like, because that's your chance. Go to sleep. Yeah. Like anything, sleep. Nap. Yes. Do it. Um, but also, I'm glad. I hope my parents aren't listening to the podcast because I was in the hospital for six weeks when I was born, and I was like, "Wait, mom, you like you didn't have to feed me and stuff for six weeks? It must have been pretty easy." But yeah, I mean, that's how. Like, I mean, I was in there the other like we were in there, and whenever you're in there, like as he gets stronger and stronger, and stronger, they let you do more and more as a parent. They want you to do more and more as a parent. So we started changing his diapers and feeding him bottles and really trying to you know adjust him and adjust us to parent life. So we had for sure that like introduction there. Um, but there was multiple times where, um, they would be like, Oh, do you want to change the diaper? And I'm like, oh, I've got plenty to do at home. Like you just go ahead. I'd be like, you're already standing by the bassinet. You go ahead and change it. I'll do it in a couple of weeks for every time. And they're like, oh, I guess you're right. Never thought about that. Like, or I'd be like, oh, I'm paying you to do it. Like you're going to do it. <laughs> that was the other thing. We were only in the hospital for two nights, but so the other advice we got essentially was like, you know, sleep when you can, once you get out, but in the hospital, they're like, when they come and ask, should we take the baby at night? Say yes. Like, yeah, absolutely. A lot of parents will feel guilty. They're like, no. Oh, we're already sleep. like, we've we've had him for, I think this is what, and we've had him for a week, week and a half, or a week. We got him on Monday of last week, so eight days today. We're already like lining up at the end of the week when his godmom wants to come watch him overnight. And we're like, hey, can you push that up a few days? Like, you can come any night. Like, you want to come Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? We're great. Like, 10 p.m. to 10, 10 a.m. He's all yours. Like, we, we trust you with it. Because at first we were like, I don't know if we can trust them with somebody. Now we're like, like, take them. Like, like you got them. Like, you want to feed them? Go ahead. You want to come over and hang out with them? Like, go ahead. He's all yours. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Anyone who's had a kid can watch another kid is, is my take. You know, they know how to feed a bottle, yeah, essentially. Exactly. So. She has three. So we're like, yeah, it's, she's, he's all yours. Qualified yeah. in my book. So. Yep. Yep. Anyone volunteering for sure is qualified. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Um, give the best to your wife. Appreciate it. Yeah, give the best you. to Cash. Hopefully, we'll see him at some meets this year. That's the goal, hopefully. So, probably not indoor. He's probably a little young for indoor, and the indoor environment's probably not the best place for him. But 
outdoor season, I'm ready for him to to be hanging out at Hayward Field in, in July for sure. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. You made it this long. We love you. But you'd really love the Let's Run.com Supporters Club if you're not a member already. You get a second podcast every week, all the exclusive Let's Run content. You can save in running shoes. You sign up for a year. You can get one of the softest running shirts in the business. Check it out today. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Also, you love the runner box. Link in the show notes. The runner box is shipped your door. It's handpicked by experts with a box full of goodies for runners. You will love this stuff. $50 of stuff in every box for as little as $29. Use code Let's Run 22 to save an extra 10 bucks. Link in the show notes.